Hello again, friends! And you are our friends, and happy summers, and to you, we are here on another episode of Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. We have some reviews, some other stuff, big topics, big issues, trendy people, all with this man, the leader of the cult of Cornette, and the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. What are you so cheerful about, Skippy? It's a huh? Well, I mean, it's just, you know, we're, everything's yeah, yeah. good. Gra- gra- grab a hold of the first five things that come to your mind. What are you, what you're so cheerful about? It's just a nice day. I'm in a very good yeah. mood. Well, fuck your nice day. How's that? Hey, what's your problem? I'm ready to bring some storm clouds in on some people's day. I'm ready to eradicate the sunshine and eliminate the rainbows and bring in some good dark storm clouds like old Joe Biffle Slick. What was the guy's name on Little Abner used to have the dark cloud hanging over him all the time? I don't know. Back in the 40s when you were a kid? I'm literally making an 80-year-old pop culture reference that I can't recall, and, and you're not even right there for it. That's going to be one of these days. Lil Abner you, was never one of the ones I liked the most. Well, I like Daisy May. Lil Abner was a little on the I so so side. I, I meant the comic strip. Oh, I thought you meant the, the wrestling. Remember there was a Lil Abner in wrestling? There was a Daisy May, the hillbilly girl. No, I don't remember this. You don't remember that? No. Holy shit. Well, that was no more than 70, 75 years ago. Daisy May, the right hillbilly the girl? Tip of your tongue. There was a Daisy May and there was a wrestling little Abner. I'm, t- I'm just telling you. Daisy May, the hillbilly girl, is like the Milo of Croton of women wrestling. Well, now, see, now you're making a fucking 3,000-year-old <laughs> reference. <laughs> For all the fucking Greek majors out there, yeah, they've just blown snot all over their screens. Anyway, I'll have you know to introduce me as Trendy McTrenderson. No, no, no more of this Jim Cornette. Everybody knows my name. We want to go where everybody knows your name. Well, go to fucking Twitter. Everybody knows my name. I'm now Trendy McTrenderson. It wouldn't stop. And, and folks, I appreciate your efforts on my behalf. And spreading the gospel according to Corny and, and spreading my my likeness and my image and my name around to the few people somewhere in the jungles of Cambodia who may not have heard of me. I appreciate everybody doing that, but goddamn, I trended for, and I know I didn't trend worldwide, and there's a whole big continent of Asia over there that probably didn't talk about me. But for the sake of the wrestling world, and however they figure that on the Twitter machine or the X or whatever the case it may be, uh, I was trending constantly for days. And every time I'd try to get on Twitter and, and retweet some of the cult's pithy comments or tweet the, the fine work that we do on YouTube or here on the podcast, it took forever to slog through everybody just battering each other about the head and face with clubs of the people for me and the people against me. Everybody's heads was on fire. Brian, it's got to the point where you can neither tell the truth or state your opinion anymore without people's heads catching on fire. About things they know nothing about. How about things that they're not familiar with and people they've never spoken to. But yet, 
So what's left? If I can't tell the truth, because in the words of the immortal bard, you can't handle the truth, at least some of you out there. And if I can't give my opinions, well, then I don't know if there's a good movie line about that. Well, then what, what in the world's a boy to do? The only other option is to do what everybody else is doing in the wrestling community and the podcasting community and either, well, this is two sides of the same coin, either lie or avoid. They either lie and say, oh, everybody's wonderful. All this shit's the greatest shit we've ever smelled right up under our noses and lollipops to all because they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. They don't want to make anybody mad or they don't want to piss anybody off where they won't give them a job or just avoid all the topics, which makes for a kind of a, a boring program. You know, you, you, you think about in the history of broadcasting, investigative reports, true stories, avoiding the issue, which one of those doesn't really get over? So if I can't tell the truth and I can't state my opinions, I, and, and I won't start lying or avoiding, I guess I'm just going to have to sing. I love to sing uh, no. about the moon and the June and the spring. Uh, I love to sing uh, about the soft wrestling fans and the soft wrestlers they like. We'll work on that and come back to you. Please. But, um, and, you know, it, it's, it's usually I trend a lot when we just release the, the programs or the YouTube clips because of the massive audience that those attract and the, the conversation they start. But I think they were especially upset this week, Brian. Uh, apparently, somehow, I don't know, I've heard of reading comprehension being an issue facing America today. But I think listening comprehension is, is, is taking hold amongst people because everybody was saying, well, how dare he say all those things that I didn't actually say? As you were- He's horrible! He's talking about a girl! A girl! A girl! Leave that's, her alone! That's disrespectful, isn't it? She's a grown adult woman over the age of 18. We can't call her a girl, can we? That's the way people react. It's crazy. Well, but and, and uh, folks, so you know, we're talking about Megan over at AEW, the head of legal. Well, the Meg legal is, beagle. Megan is department. her name, not Megan. That's that's what I said, Megan. And, and what we were discussing was the the impropriety. It would seem the conflict of interest potentially that one would think would arise when the head of the legal department and the person who's been described as the number two in the company uh, publicly by Tony Khan in the past that was a part of the group who stormed into CM Punk's locker room back last September and when that whole thing went down. Now, she wasn't leading the charge. She wasn't the first one in the door, but she was on the scene and bringing up the rear. We, that's pretty much been established that she was right there in the, in the picture. And then she has continued over the last year. We've heard that she was involved in still in contract, not necessarily negotiation, but preparing contracts in her legal duties for people that 
were involved in that situation. That seems like a conflict on either side. And we'd also heard that, you know, maybe all these investigations that have been done, maybe they weren't completely independent. Maybe they were still under the AEW con empire umbrella. I mentioned that also that, uh, you know, since obviously she's close to the Bucks, maybe that was a conflict when she was dealing with things involving CM Punk. I said she's close friends with the Bucks. I said not as close as she is with some of the boys. And my goodness gracious, that wasn't pee-picking good for a lot of people. How dare you? You're slut-shaming Megan. Oh, my God. I had people saying that I said in so many words that she had slept with every member of the locker room. You're going to get sued. Watch out, Cornette. You're going to get sued. Gonna, she's the head of legal. She'll sue. As a matter of fact, somebody tweeted that. He said that she slept with all the members of the locker room, and I, I retweeted that back. I said, I never once said all. And I don't know where these people, in their in their perverted minds, their deviant behavior in their real lives is coming out and they're projecting. And they just think that apparently, either they know something I don't maybe because they went so far with these accusations like they were trying to defend her, but they said that she'd pretty much done everything except the USC football team. And I never said anything like that. Because, Brian, I, you know, I've got to admit one thing. Whether we like the wrestling or not, or Tony's booking or not, you can't tell me that there's a more professionally run pro wrestling promotion in the world than AEW when it comes to talent relations and lack of impropriety in talent relations, making sure everything's done according to Hoyle, as they say, and that there's no improprieties amongst the the members of the roster or amongst the roster and office people that would have to be a pretty shoddily run company to allow something like that going on imagine the the, the number two in the company having improper and or intimate relations with members of the wrestling roster and the the number two in the company having inappropriate relations with younger members of the wrestling roster, younger than they are when they have power and control over their contracts or legal issues, and and the number two in the company actually carrying on in a manner like that with people on the roster that are beneath them and under them and subject to their wills? Well, that sounds positively Laurinaitis-ish. That could certainly never go on in a company that values its smooth talent relations and its complete professionalism backstage in every way, office and roster, like AEW, it could never go on, could it? I don't think so, because I think if something like that happened in AEW, if there was an executive, male or female, who has had sexual relations with one or more members of the roster who were all younger and a unequal position, like you laid out there before, I think it would be reported to HR. Who runs HR over there? 
The legal department? I think Mega runs HR. Actually. Well, there you go. Well, she'd keep a good eye out. She would keep a good eye out for those whistleblowers and that information because she'd want to know first thing. But anyway, otherwise than that, I appreciate everybody helping spread the gospel of Cornette around the world as you have by making me the center of attention. But give somebody else a chance. That's, I'm trying to be humble and I don't want to be greedy. So one or two days this week, go ahead and talk about somebody else, just for a change. Make it different, and and I'll sit back and pet Harley and enjoy being out of the spotlight for a day or two before somebody else does something stupid. It's like a fucking traveling high school, AEW. Well, you know that rock and roll high school. Maybe they could do That's a that good instead movie. of. Well, maybe they could do that instead of calling it a wrestling program or having live wrestling shows. They could say, look, Rock and Roll High School, only the fight scenes. <laughs> Have you seen Rock and Roll High School? No, I just remember the title, but it sounds like <laughs> fucking AEW. No, it's about Riff Randall, a big fan of the Ramones, and she gets to go see them, and Darby crashes in the crowd, and the Ramones play a great set, and then if you read the book, Please Kill Me, Dee Dee Ramone couldn't remember his one line, Hey, pizza, it's great, dig in. And then the Ramones blow up the high school. Well, these pretzels are making me thirsty. All right, Dr. That's, Van Nostrin, if you'd like to move right. on, we can keep going. Anyway, speaking of complete irrelevancy, I want to thank everybody. We've been talking about this, the, the impending launch of the Midnight Express action figures for weeks and weeks now, so I want to tell everybody the update after the launch has been launched, and it was successful, and I want to thank everybody. We have sold more than half of the 2,000 sets, the limited edition in, what is it, not f not five full days yet. Uh, and we appreciate, and here's a couple of things that went sideways. I mentioned this on the experience that we did a few days ago when we were in the middle of all of this, that Hotchkiss couldn't pull the trigger on a, uh, just having people be able to order the Midnight Express box set or my other fine merchandise. Uh, there would have to have been some retooling of the platform that we were not aware of and we didn't find out in time. And I said, fuck it, just take it down. So you can't get any Jim Cornette merchandise right now. You can only order the Midnight Express 40th anniversary action figure set. And the reason for that is because we don't want to be completely flummoxed and have everything out by Valentine's Day. We already have an orderly process as I mentioned, we've sold over a thousand, and we appreciate uh, the response. And we have an orderly process that will be beginning in the next couple of days of personalizing all the pictures and preparing all the boxes. And we may even be able to beat our goal of starting to ship uh, the first week of October if the feather bottoms get their their bottoms feathered. Uh, but you will be able to, after September, the initial pre-order period, we're restocking all of the uh, Jim Cornette items, T-shirts, DVDs, books, et cetera, et cetera, that can be restocked. And those are going to go back up the first Saturday in October when we have significantly uh, mustered our way through these Midnight Express action figure orders. And for anybody who's been in Brazil on an island somewhere, whatever, and haven't heard about this, the Midnight Express 40th anniversary action figure set, the first and last time that all four of us will be together 
in action figure form in a collector's box with a 28-page full-color book, a reunion photo signed by Dennis and Stan and personalized by me, and a certificate of authenticity. If you go to jimcornett.com right now, they are selling fast. And the reason why some folks, now that we have reflected on this, had a problem Saturday at noon. Brian, I, I've, been, I've been saying Saturday at noon is when they were going to go on sale for all this time, right? Well, to, there were three different packages. The package with the Midnight Express scrapbook included. We only had nine of those. And with all four of our autographs on the 8x10, we only had 100 of those. And then the regular package that I just described. And so Hotchkiss literally had to go through like a 60-second procedure. I don't know if he clicks on something or punches a button or whatever the fuck, but to make all three of these items live on the air, able to be purchased, and the personalization box and blah, 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 is like a minute process to do all that stuff, right? Because he invented a lot of this shit. You know that. So he started at like 11.58.30. Then I'll get this up for noon. And as he's clicking on stuff, so many people were in line and waiting and hitting refresh or however it is you do this thing. that They started buying the, sh the shit instantly. And a lot of people were basically flummoxed in the cart and or got error messages on their shit because so many people were trying to get the packages that there were so few of that it was, what did you call it, a race to the checkout. It was like literally within milliseconds of each other, if you hit a button, but the last person had hit the button to take the last item, you were fucked up and people were buttonheads. But the site didn't crash. And if you ordered the regular package, you had no trouble. But some people, unfortunately, were left out of the... Because they all, all the special packages went in, I think, either, he said, 90 seconds or 120 seconds. So that was the issue. But everything's all right now. Even though last weekend some people were in rough shape. And I'm sorry if you got knocked out of it I appreciate a lot of people went back and bought the regular package. Those are what the available sets are now. And at this rate, they're, they're still going. I'm not sure how long we'll have them. If you want it, jump in as quick as you can. JimCornette.com. And I spoke not only to Dennis and Stan, but also to Bobby's kids to give them the update on the sales. And they want to express their appreciation also for Dennis and his wife, Teresa, Stan, and his wife, Maria, uh, Bobby's kids, Dustin, Taryn, Dylan, and the many grandkids. I'm not going to try to leave anybody's name out here. Uh, it's going to be a nice Christmas present for them to see how many people appreciated their work. And at the same time, everybody gets an awesome collectible that I'm, I don't have the probably the time left on earth or at least the patience to go through this again so the this will be the the one and only four pack of us forevermore but i'll tell you i just well, get ready for that six pack with norvell and randy rose hey don't know kayfabe we're not no uh, we, we can't find norvell to get him to sign a contract so but anyway thank you guys i appreciate it and regular 
all the other uh, items, including the ever-popular Cornette Face shirt that is at every television show everywhere, uh, will be back up the first Saturday in October for our Christmas celebration. All right, Christmas in October. Sounds like a brilliant Well, idea. no, no, hold on. We're not going to know. See, you're misconscruing the whole thing here. How's that? October is when the Christmas shopping season starts because think of all the people over there on the Isle of Man or over there on the Isle of Malta or over there in fucking Samoa somewhere or the UK or Germany or wherever we're shipping. The Emerald Isle. The Emerald Isle. If they order the first, second week of October, by the time that we process everything and get it shipped, they're going to be getting it during the holiday season, but in time for Christmas. See, we're thinking about our worldwide customers, not just the folks here in Poughkeepsie. So the Christmas celebration starts in October. All right. Well, we are here Thanksgiving in September. And we, we had a celebration this week when everybody <laughs> jumped on the goddamn bandwagon that we've been trumpeting toot toot for so long now about our favorite weasel, your friend and mine, Mr. Thompson. Yeah, a very interesting week after we, I mean, we recorded so much stuff in the last uh, several days and now things are kind of slowing down to the normal frantic pace. <clears throat> I forget when it was, but late last week, Jason Ellis spoke out. Jason Ellis is a skateboarder. He's a longtime, he had a radio show on Sirius for years. He's been a podcaster, does a show with Tony Hawk. He's done MMA. People know who he is. And he got ripped off by Cast Media and Colin Thompson. He put up a video about it. Apparently other people who work there may have been helping Colin check out his video, ask any questions. You know, anyone who has any questions, ask any of the show's questions because there's a lot going on here, but Jason Ellis spoke out. That got some attention. And then Theo Vaughn, who is a comedian. Some of you who are around my age, I'm 43, may remember him from Road Rules years ago on MTV, but he's a comedian. He's got a pretty big podcast and a pretty big following, and he's out there. And I saw he's got like a million Twitter followers and... Probably 700, 800,000 of them are probably real, like normal with Twitter. But still, he's got a widespread audience. And apparently some crossover. Apparently some crossover. And the thing is, with a lot of us who talk to an audience, we end up having more of a real Twitter following than a lot of people who, they're famous, but they don't really, like, there's no communication. It's just, like, I'm famous, follow me. And clearly, based on the reaction Theo got to his video, that I encourage everyone to check out, and his podcast that I encourage everyone to check out, talking about Colin Thompson, cast media, as he put it, his show being defrauded. He says, I, got, I have to say this, because this is so interesting. And we'll see what this ties into. Because as we are recording today, this is the day before the podcast one stock goes public. And I have been informed that podcast one's Rob Ellen as well as Colin Thompson, are both now claiming that Colin never had a guaranteed job with Podcast One. <laughs> that he was never going to be a part of this. You know, which ignores kind of what their press statements indicated and ignores what I was told. But now they're denying that it was ever a thing. Theo Vaughn in his video says flat out he was told that by them. And they defended him the same way they did in that interview 
that Rob Ellen did with uh, Podcast Business Journal. Well, I watched the Theo Vaughn video on YouTube and also saw so many of the comments from people who apparently listen to his and our show. That's why there's some crossover audience because they were all saying the same thing. They were saying, my God, this is almost the identical story that Theo Vaughn is telling, that Cornette and Last have been telling. He was given the same deal, the same treatment, the same the same issues started happening. And then the, the same money started being owed in the exact same way. And then the same thing was told, as was told to us, as was presented to us. It was almost identical. Of course, he worded it differently, but it's the identical chain of events that everybody has gotten pretty much that we've spoken to that have dealt with Colin Thompson, cast media, Rob Ellen, live one podcast one. And what's that? Theo even mentioned, I we're on first name basis now because we've both been fucked together. Um, what's the crooked lawyer's name? Oh, Neil Sacker. Neil Sacker mentioned him too. And, and that he worked he was, for Harvey Weinstein. He's apparently he's yes. like telling people all about that. Yes. And Miramax. Apparently Theo Vaughn didn't think anything more, didn't think any more of that than we did as far as not being an endorsement of an attorney. And so he's telling the exact same story because they've done this to so many different people in so many different fields, big and small, as we mentioned, you know, apparent caretaking parents and comedians and wrestling pseudo celebrities or whatever the case, we're all in the same boat with these crooks that are trying to do and are going to do an IPO on Wall Street tomorrow for this company that they're apparently building with fraud, broken promises, misappropriation, and Elmer's glue. Yeah, the stock is going to be going public. And we got to keep a running tally on this thing, don't we? We certainly do, because again... You would assume if Colin Thompson is selling the assets of Cast Media that Cast Media actually has, which I guess would only be the original productions produced and executive produced and owned by Colin Thompson, that Colin will be getting a good amount of stock with this deal, a good amount of money. So it'll be very interesting. Very interesting. I wonder if his will be good right away or if he has to wait for two years like he was wanting us to wait. Well, I think we'll find that out. I think we're going to find out a lot of things in very short order. We're going to find out what happens when Colin Thompson gets his ass kicked in arbitration. We're going to find out what happens when Colin Thompson gets sued from a variety of people. We're going to find out what happens when, when Colin Thompson has to deal with the reality that Podcast One's going to eventually cut ties. It's not a, it's not a reality. It's an eventuality. It's that he's gotten too toxic because we're all speaking out. They thought we were all going to shut up. Again, to refresh everyone from the email chain, you can go back. There's a playlist now for it on YouTube. We were told that our money was gone, that Colin's going to go bankrupt and we'll get nothing, or we have to sign a new deal with Podcast One for worse terms, terms that could be changed by them, apparently, based on the wording of the email, but terms that weren't good for us, we would get a third of the money that they claim they owe us. They also owe us accounting, and they've sent us various sets of numbers at different times, so they claim they owe us the amount that they would give us a third of in cash, a third of over two years in an unknown source, not defined. 
and a third in pre-IPO stock in podcast one. We rejected all of this. We said, just give us our money. And the strong arm tactics began. There were two different sets of them. It was talk to podcast one. Colin kept doing it every email. I rejected that we were going to do this every email. Talk to them, talk to them, talk to them. Rob Ellen tries to go behind my back, gets in touch with Jim. Same thing. Talk I to think my you team. don't want to talk to me. Talk to my team. Talk to my team. Every email. Talk to my my gut tell my gut tells me you should talk to my team. Well, he ought to he ought to be eating some of those fucking athletic greens he used to sell us the spots for because his gut's wrong. And then the intimidation was, we expect you to keep confidentiality for the contract that we don't have with you. We think you should know you'll be in line for ten to twenty million dollars in damages from a variety of parties. <laughs> If you do anything to mess up this deal, don't say anything out in public. Yeah. What we were told. So I would strongly advise you not to say anything. The other, my other favorite thing still is the S Rob Allen from uh, podcast one or live one. The SEC doesn't take too kindly to these kind of threats. My threat was to call the SEC. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's the, that's like Saturday night's all right for fighting, except when you do and then you get fired. <laughs> Saturday night's all right for firing. The SEC doesn't think, take kindly to threats of people calling them. That's why we tweeted them. That's why our lawyer called them. <laughs> but, and, and, and just in, uh, real briefly, just uh, refresh me. Um, I'm trying to think of the dozens and dozens and many, many shows that have taken this deal publicly that have gone over to these whatever the company this these people are trying to put together instead of just going off the grid completely or speaking out we know sarah silverman hadn't had a new podcast in a couple months poor thing and i guess pen gillette has been run over to patreon theo vaughn said something jason ellis said something we've said a number of things and we've heard of that one podcast, that one show that did migrate over because they were owed oh, well over a million dollars and figured they could get something so they could pay their staff. Or buy a truck or something. Or buy a truck or whatever. The fuck. Nobody's knocking this door down is what I'm saying. They got nothing. They're getting nothing. Cast Media was a joke run by a crook. It Was I plain enough on that? I goddamn double dog dare you. Sue me just to give me something to fucking talk about, motherfucker. You fucking crooks. You pieces of shit. You sleep in the street. You drink Thunderbird and smell like elderberries. <laughs> You've taken it I too far. I upon you. You've gone too far now. Theo Vaughn said it great. I actually, I love what he said. I think, I think the exact quote was, I think he's the Bernie Madoff of podcasting. Yeah, because he made off with our money. Because it is like a Ponzi scheme. When you rob Peter to pay Paul, that's called a Ponzi scheme. And here's another thing. Who does Paul know? Because Paul's always the one getting paid. Peter's always the one getting robbed. Why, could, why couldn't it be even? Why couldn't every once in a while you rob Paul and pay Peter back? How come Peter gets the dick into things? That's just the way people say it. You could feel free to say it the other way. Be different. Stand well, out. Well, goddamn, if I'm the only one, then I'm, I'm battling a goddamn giant tide. <laughs> we need a movement. Well, a movement has started, and the shows that were ripped off and defrauded 
by cast media are speaking out. They're not afraid. And we're all going to do, I think I can speak on behalf of Arcadia and Vanguard and Jim Cornette, anything we could do to help any of the other shows, we're there. The fact that we're not letting this get by is a good thing. Yeah, and let me just say one more thing, Colin Thompson, because you're younger than I am, Colin, but I'm in pretty good fucking health, and I'll guarantee you that if you get on any form of social media for the rest of your life, I'll know, and other people will too, because I'm going to start a movement, and that movement's going to finish when I'm squatting over your face and I have that movement in your mouth. (laughs) Well, hold on now. I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if everyone wants to join a movement that has that as the only. No, ultimate. that'll be just my <laughs> private movement. But one way or another, this guy can do <laughs> once in the world of business. But if he's on any kind of social media, or his name is, unless he changes his name to Izzy Frobusher, then uh, I will let people know how they can express their feelings about what he's done for the rest of my life. So I hope he's going to become a monk at a monastery somewhere. It'll probably be more peaceful for him. It makes me happy, and I think it makes the other victims of cast happy that he's not going to be able to outrun this. This will follow him. But I also think it makes us all happy that you could say the same thing about that hairdo. <laughs> He'll never be able to outrun the multiple photos of him with that ridiculous fucking You know what? He looks so much like little Pip Sabian that people on Twitter were saying, aha! See, Cornette, you've been knocking him for four years. He assumed a fake identity just to get revenge. It's been Pip Sabian all along. Not to go too far off, but Kip Sabian, I've seen a couple of things with him recently. Maybe worth a second look at some point. What the... F- have they... Have they figured out some way to surgically enhance his fucking legs so he's a foot taller? No, and I don't think it's them. I think it's him. I think he's figured out a little bit more of a personality so he stands out. But also, actually, I saw him on the British uh, pre-show, and I thought he was really, really good on that as one of the people, one of the talking heads, one of the people sitting next to Renee. But anyway, back to Colin Thompson. He's not going to outrun this. Again, he stole all of our money. For a long time, it's not like you just suddenly, like, oh, all of a sudden the money's all gone. No, it took time, and he was fucking around with the books for a while. We want the accounting. And eventually, he made it so that the only option, by his choice, because he had plenty of time to give anyone a heads up, the only option was, I go bankrupt, or you take this deal. I get nothing, or you save my ass. That's what that is. He didn't realize we had an option, which was go fuck your mother. And that's. But then you showed me a picture of her, and I said, "No, (laughs) even six figures—that ain't worth it." Well, it's six figures for us, and it's six figures for others. It's seven figures for others. We're talking millions of dollars that are gone. Where was that money appropriated? We will find out. Do you think him and this other weasel Ellen are going to get one of those rounds of applause when they foist this bad paper out at the uh, at the stock exchange tomorrow as we speak here now? It'll be by the time people hear this, it will have happened. So we'll be keeping track of the value of the stock, where it starts and where it ends up. And apparently they're spinning off the slacker radio. Someone told me I got to check into this. That's going to be the next stock that they spin off from the company that owes all the money to the fucking sound exchange. I don't know what to think is, of all this. Is spinning off kind of like fighting off? 
Is that is it? They fight off? Will they spin off, or should they just sit on it and spin in one place? It's like Maud and the Jeffersons worked. Fish didn't. <laughs> Sometimes it works. GE split in half. That very, works. Very good. Very good. That's Poor insane. Abe Vigoda. God damn it. Well, he's dead now. Well, he's dead. But you know what? He looked like he was 90 when he was 60. That's the problem. Everyone said that for like 40 years of his life. You look like an yeah. old man. And then, you know, Ernie Borgnine was 96 when he died. We kept waiting for him to die. Why? Not because not because we hated Ernie Borgnine, but it seemed like he had been old for so long, he should be even older than that. Mickey Rooney was pretty old, wasn't he? Mickey Rooney, my God, he fossilized before he quit breathing. Apparently he was a real fucking maniac. I read something recently, Dana Carvey was talking about working on Mickey Rooney's sitcom that he had briefly in the early 80s. Like Dana Carvey, no one remembers it because it lasted a very short period of time. It was Mickey Rooney with Dana Carvey, either as his son or his roommate. I forget what it was. But he said Mickey Rooney every single day to set would be like, I was the biggest star in Hollywood. <laughs> I slept with everyone. <laughs> and then he lived another 30 years or whatever. Yeah. And then he was sitting there with his like eighth wife doing fucking insurance commercials where she was really kind of shaking his jowls from the back of his neck so that it looked like his mouth was moving. It's crazy seeing Shatner on like the old Twilight Zone episodes and realizing like he could be in the next commercial. Oh yeah. Now. Again, he's 90 fucking four and still doing first run television shows and major motion pictures and sitcoms, commercials, endorsements. The fuck he, it, 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 and look at, William Shatner and look at George Burns when they were the same age, 94 years old. What the fuck happened to poor George? He got them. Well, but it did. It looked like he shrunk. He was dehydrated. They, they, <laughs> they desiccated him. It took all the moisture out of him. He was half as tall as he was when he was 50 years old. He was half the weight. Well, Shatner's pretty plump. I get you're saying Shatner stretched out all of his wrinkles. You remember what he looked like on TJ Hooker? Do you think him and Bruno shared the same wig maker? Oh, when Bruno had the perm, very good. There. Yeah, because uh, let's face it, that was obviously artificially enhanced at that point. But, but at the same point, think about this. George Burns, a man of his time, yeah. a manly man. He never had work done. He never had any kind of cosmetic surgery or whatever. Now, we might, William Shatner can afford the best. He looks pretty good, but let's, maybe he's had so many facelifts, they'd have enough left over to make a midget. And maybe if, if he didn't wear that high-necked shirt, you would see nipples on his neck. <laughs> we don't know what, what he's had done to enhance himself. George was just out there like George was. After Gracie died in 64, he said, fuck it. I'm just going to fuck every fucking starlet in Hollywood on my reputation. I'm not going to do anything about my appearance. I haven't heard that about George Burns. You heard that he fucked every starlet? I'm, I'm thinking he was always on those award shows and on the arm of some bevy of beauties. On the award so, show, they put those people together and shoot, shushed them out. They just pushed them right onto the stage. For, yeah, but from the time he was 65 to the time he was maybe 80, 82, somewhere about that, he had to have a little fucking... 
comedy relief every now and then, didn't he? One would think. Me and Lana Turner. <laughs> and Judy Garland, I got her her first pills. All right, well, this was uh, the cast media segment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fuck you, Colin. We're coming for your ass. Yeah, fuck you, Colin. Yeah. Fuck your whole family, Colin. Give us yeah. our money, Colin. Dirtbag. Uh, allegedly. Allegedly. All this is alleged. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, once again, if you hear this, it has been cleared by our legal counsel. If you got a problem with that, call him directly. Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. That's right. All right. Well, let's move on here with the show, Jim. And we have lots of things to talk about, including something we have promised people for a while we have to do. And we're going to do it right now. We are. The review. I hate, I hate to tell the truth and come through on all of our promises. All right, well, I hear the documentation in your hands because it's always easy to hear. The Cody Rhodes documentary that aired on Peacock, which had a name of some sort, but everyone just knows it as the Cody Rhodes documentary. Of the American, goddammit, I'll give it to you. The American Nightmare, Becoming Cody Rhodes. It's always, now that's a trend, right? Becoming who this person is. It's all about the journey. It's, it's artistic. Uh, and but have I seen spots for something on Angle? Is there something on Angle going on now? Yeah, actually, we've gotten a few listeners who got in touch already and said that we should check that one out, too, that it's another great documentary WWE did. Well, then we'll do that, and hopefully it won't take us three or four weeks or whatever like this one. But people keep doing things. Um, and This was a two-hour documentary piece that uh, the WWF has done. It, it, it was... It was premiered and and lives exclusively on on the cock for right now, right? On Peacock? I believe so. I don't know where. I mean, unless they aired on TV at some point. I don't know where else it would have lived. They don't but I mean, they, they used to, this used to be a DVD release, but I guess that's gone the way of the amalgamated buggy whips, right? They just now yes. it's just on the cock. No, it was one of the smartest things they ever did. They found a way to get rid of royalties. Yeah, I noticed that about, what was it, eight, nine years ago now? Anyway, the the video and the production, we've talked about it. They're not only do they have a, a production budget, but they also have a very talented staff. They have the equipment in-house. They have people that know what the fuck they're doing. They not only they have creative people that have ideas. This is it's filmmaking. They're kind of taking this a little bit to the next level in terms of the 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 standard wrestling documentary the way it's shot the artistry of the the video the editing etc they have the little concept pieces where he's out in the desert at a fucking crossroads or looking for a camel to milk or out of it's deep right you see what i'm saying to you brian of course at the crossroads looking for a camel to milk <laughs> that's what happened to robert johnson i understand <laughs> That's right, down there in Clarksdale. Either that or it was at the Oasis. No, that was Maria Muldaur. And she was putting her camel to bed, not milking it. The, the sheik is the one that got milked. Nevertheless, so Cody, but he was in these, God damn you. He was in these various, in between the chapters of the piece, he was in these various locations and sets. It was very artsy. And and they do wonderful work. And it was narrated by Stephen Amell. If uh, 
if this was AEW, it'd be narrated by the fucking hot dog vendor or something. They, they, they went overboard here to make this a big production. And, you know, they, they had to start by telling a little bit of Dusty's story, the footage of him uh, in 1977 at the Garden, the match with superstar Billy Graham, and that Cody was, you know, the, the second wave of Dusty's kids. And, and that's when Dusty wasn't on the road full-time, and he was able to spend more time with them so it wasn't beaten over the head here in this documentary, but I think there was a little bit more mention of it in the Dusty biography on A&E or whatever, that Dustin's relationship with Dusty was at, at a point was troubled. Everybody knows that now. Whereas Cody had a closer relationship because he was part of the second, second family. But anyway... I loved, I did not know the story that when Cody won his high school wrestling uh, championship, he was a state champion junior and senior year. He went 101 and two, apparently. But the, he made them announce him as the winner, Cody Rhodes, instead of Cody Runnels. That was, that was cool. That was really cool. I mean, again, this was all put together so well and then telling the story of as you said the title was Becoming Cody Rhodes. <laughs> it really did a great job of that. And then uh, Cody and his sister, Teal, wanted to be actors and moved to Hollywood. And I guess that's where he learned the workshopping and, and things that we've somewhat taken him to task for. Uh, see, he'd probably see, he'd probably disagree with us, but I agree with you. This is where he learned his worst features as a promo. Like his worst qualities of sometimes the overacting, but he probably thinks it was one of the best things he did. Well, but maybe it helped him with his uh, public speaking in general or being more comfortable, or maybe it helped him in the way his ideas, which he doesn't hit a bullseye every time, but his promos won the strongest part of the, of his game. So, you know, I just... Until he gets I've too just, actory. That's well, that's, that's the thing. I've just always hated the idea of not only wrestlers being called or compared to or referred to as actors, but as the wrestlers that, that tried to be actors. They've never been that great at it for the most part. Uh, and it's it was an insult to the business years ago. So, uh, yeah, but anyway, it didn't work. They left Hollywood and came back to Georgia. And that's where he told Dusty that he wanted to be a wrestler. And I like the OVW footage. I wish it, it, we missed each other by, I think, like six months. He was there right, right after I was gone. But I would have enjoyed working with Cody. But he put OVW over as college, which is what it was in those days. It was a wrestling college where even if you had experience in, you know, you'd been to grade school or you'd maybe even been to high school, but this is where you went to graduate. And, you know, the one thing you can say about Cody is he he does not slack off. He makes the most of any opportunity and goes out and makes some of his own opportunities. He He's a sponge when it comes to shit like that, and he's always trying to think of things. 
which and you can be jaded and say, well, he's always looking for things to put himself over, or you can be, well, he's always looking for things to get himself over. And the Hall of Fame speech, apparently, is when the office up there in the WWE noticed that he was coming along linguistically. Um, you know, it's funny. I always hear people talk about that. I always think it's a nice speech, and I never see like the thing that would have made anyone go, oh my God, we have to sign him right now. I mean, it's a nice speech and everything, but, you know, he's smaller then, and... I don't know. The, the the idea that that was the thing that turned everything around always fascinated me. Or not turned everything around, but they got him signed. Not turned it around, just kicked it in the ass. Well, but, you know, again, some of the younger guys in that environment, that many people, that much pressure, can't handle the, uh, the speech, That's the true. speaking. And that was a period of time where they started getting a lot of the second or in some cases third, but second-generation wrestlers, Richie Steamboat, Cody Rhodes, uh, Bray Wyatt would eventually come in there. Like Over the, the next several years, all of a sudden you started seeing a lot of these guys who were the sons of the people from the 80s. Well, yeah, and that was Cody's thing with Legacy, with Orton and DiBiase Jr. And poor, poor DiBiase Jr. didn't, didn't pan out. Um to say the least, uh, with recent events, but <laughs> here Cody and Orton are, you know, 15 years later or whatever the fuck. Wouldn't it be a great um, heel turn for Cody if DiBiase Jr. shows up and says, Cody was my partner? Oh my God, he was in the plan all along. We, we, <laughs> we were riding up down the road together planning this in the car. It was me, Cody, and Brett Favre. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought that when I first saw it, his name was Favre. Uh, so dashing Cody Rhodes was, boy, um, you know, I didn't see much of any of this because the 2009, 10, 11, you know, era, I was in ring of honor and not paying attention to anything except that, but dashing, I heard about the dashing and the whatever the fuck. And, you know, they made the point that he tried as best he could with, you know, whatever they gave him. But God damn, there were some bad gimmicks being handed out at that point in time, weren't there? Yeah, I was never a fan of dashing Cody Rhodes. And I think a lot of the gimmicks they gave him are part of the reason why it took a lot of people, including myself, time to get used to him as something else. Because it was this, and then eventually Stardust. In between, there was like a brief period of time, and they talk about it in this way, it was him and Dustin and Dusty. And they treated him like Cody Rhodes with his family that was starting to get some traction, but then they didn't talk about Dusty being pulled off TV in this documentary. Yeah. Well, and then going back to the Stardust thing, and, you know, again, he committed to everything. He tried his hardest, um, but he realized that Stardust was not going to be a top guy, and he was kind of at rock bottom. And... You know, after a year or whatever, the last year of that, he he was like, why can't I get out of this? And Dusty told him to quit. It became, what did you think of that? What did you think of that? Well, Dusty was the smartest one in, in, the, in the organization. That's what I've said. Mick Foley did this twice, I think, as a matter of fact. With WCW in, what, 1990. 90 or 91, and again in 92 or 93. 90. Um, and then 94. Yeah, there you go, twice. Point is, 
if they're not using you, if you've got confidence in yourself, if you know you can do better, but you are in a position where if you keep doing what you're doing on national TV, your career potentially will not recover from it, then you got to go do something else. And Dusty knew that. And it's, it's the same philosophy as in the territories. Either they weren't using you or they had used you, but now you've been there too long or somebody's mad or whatever, you got to go somewhere else. Don't be beaten into powder. Don't be marginalized, trivialized, whatever. That's as old as the hills in wrestling, and Dusty knew that. And I think he also knew that Cody wanted to stick in it. He probably said, if you want to stick with this, then do something else. There's, there's in Japan. I don't know if anybody thought about TNA. Dusty'd been there, probably wasn't a fan. Who knows? Wherever, do something different. And that's where they, you know, he made the point that there was Dusty coaching the NXT guys and grooming the stars of the next generation, and his own son couldn't be a part of it because they'd already already put him on the main roster and made him look like an idiot. So he had to leave. Ugh. But anyway, so then I guess I, I, I'm hard, or it was hard to believe it's 2015 now that Dusty died. It's been that eight years now. But hearing Cody telling that story was, you know, heartbreaking. Um, he, you know, I think is that the year he had the SummerSlam match with Stephen Amell, and that was Stardust. That was the end of it, right? And creative had nothing for him. He said that one of the writers was doing the turned off laptop thing. How the fuck does anybody get away with that? How did that guy not get goozled? Well, exactly. And damn, I had to stop Charlie Haas from goozling fucking Greg the Office Boy because he gave him a rude answer. Imagine how different wrestling history would have been if you hadn't stopped him. You know, I bet you he probably could have fucking... Charlie be out by now. Well, I was about to say, he could have put Greg in an iron lung with one shot and Ring of Honor may have survived. Anyway, uh, so finally, he Cody just said, fuck it. I'm not putting this fucking suit on again. And I fired the WWE. I told him good luck in their future endeavors. And he walked away from it. And it's the same thing me and Stan did in 1990. When I... I thought at that point that the Midnight Express would be back together sometime soon because I didn't think they'd keep renewing Bobby because Heard didn't want to renew any of us. And, you know, 150 grand in 1990, what's that today? About 450. That's why I said, fuck you, keep it. I don't like being here. I don't want to do this anymore. I got to do something else. And that's what he did. Hey, and then. I, hey, let me ask you, what do you think it says about. You know, because not everyone has that mindset. And we're kind of, in a sense, going through a lot of that now with cast media because we said, you know, fuck you to the six figures we're owed. And we're going to try to figure out a way to get as much of that back as possible. But if we don't, we don't. You said the same thing in WCW 1990. I've guaranteed money on the table. I'd rather try to do something else, still make that money some way, but I'd rather try. Cody made the same decision. Not everyone does that. What kind of mindset do you need to make that happen? How much self-belief do you need? Well, in my case, it was, I will fucking either have a heart attack and die or 
run over one of these motherfuckers with my car if I ever have to look at any of them ever again. That is where I'd go. So I just, I just want to go home. Fuck it. I'm going to go run a goddamn wrestling territory, and if I make a, a fourth of what I'm fucking making right now, I'll be happy. And that's approximately what I made and approximately what I did. And then other shit opened up as a result of that. But, you know, I think Cody realized that he was still young enough and learning to work and getting better because everybody gets better as they go along and they get older, more experience, etc. And he could do more. And then he just, he went out to Evolve and Northeast Wrestling and he was on that What Culture pro wrestling event that I did with Jim Ross in 2016 in, in uh, the UK and working with Kurt Angle. And he just went everywhere. And <clears throat> I caught, uh, what was it? Um, the NWA, the Crockett Cup 2018. He worked with Nick Aldis for the NWA title. I called that. And he worked his shit out on the independence, as we've talked about many times, where he could figure out how to be Cody Rhodes because they hadn't allowed him to be. He knew how he wanted to do it, but he he hadn't actually done it as a grown-up adult with experience. So the weight belt or the music or the fucking Cody cutter or the all of whatever the fuck, that's where he went and did all that before he was on national TV again. He went away and learned a new hold. We talk about it all the time. He learned, don't bring your dog next to pyrotechnics. Well, that's something that we hadn't covered on the podcast, so I don't blame him for not. <laughs> you know, he that way, if we'd, have, if we'd have talked about that, he would have known that as well. Hey, let me just say, I thought Cody's entire family, Brandy, his sister, everyone came across greatness, his mom especially. Yeah. When it comes to Cody working things out on the indies and looking at who he is now, do you, I mean, this is such a silly question. Do you think he needed to bleach his hair? Like, do you, he needed to be, you know, he's had his hair bleached now for several years, but I think early on when he went to the indies, he had it bleached and then it went back to normal and then it went back to bleached. Do you think he needed to change the look and kind of go with the blonde hair? I think... Did it help? I'd, I yeah. I don't want to be insulting when I say this, but when Cody has dark hair, to me, he looks like a regular fucking guy. But when he has the and the same length, same style, just going to blonde from dark, then he he looks like he ought to be somebody. Even if you don't know who he is, you you think, well, that guy, I guess he's somebody that does something. Maybe I should know, because why would you? Why else would you? It it just it, it sets him apart a little bit, makes him look a little bit less normal, which not comedically, but just noticeably. I so I I think it works for him. At the, I, the now the tattoo on the neck, I would sandblast in a heartbeat, but I don't I don't dislike his blonde hair. And hey, did you see the footage of him? producing at shows i did and does anybody think the first all-in show right uh, you know does anybody think that they could have done that from a wrestling organizational standpoint without cody being on that team of future evps who else had any 
experience whatsoever with a major league television production or in a, a producing background, not only from Dusty, but from his time in the WWF. I can see the buckaroos out there trying to, you know, teach people how to work the hard camera or whatever when they'd barely ever done television to begin with. That He knew how. This That's the thing. He, I believe, whether he inherited or not, but he inherited the, the desire to have Dusty's mind to be the producer-director rather than just an actor. I think he inherited a lot of the positives and negatives of Dusty's executive run. I think desire has never been the issue. You know, you brought up him and the Bucks with All In. I know Kenny gets attached, but it's really the Bucks and Cody. And really, when you think about it, it was Cody. Cody's the motivator. Cody was the heartbeat. The Bucks had the buzz. Make no mistake, Cody wasn't as hot then as the Bucks were. Or Omega was just on buzz because he really wasn't wrestling in the States. But Cody was the one who really drummed everything up. And there were aspects where he was talented as an executive. And there were other aspects where he wasn't, either he wasn't there yet, or it's just not his skill set. But I also think there was a desire to, Paul Avexa EVP, we need to be EVP. <laughs> but I think that's the thing. When you see like the Young Bucks do interviews, like, you know, we're the reason this place exists. You know, Cody was the one who put out that tweet to Meltzer. And Cody was the more business-minded of everyone, despite how many t-shirts the Bucks' wives sell, or whatever the fuck. And I think Cody probably, it'll probably take time, but he probably deserves more credit than he's been given for AEW existing. It seems like they had less trouble in the locker room all the way around while he was a part of it. it you know, it's, is it really that different? Or is it just that Cody and Punk are different people? If Punk was not passive, that's not the word, but if Punk was attempting to be diplomatic all the time. Diplomatic and conciliatory and trying to bring two parties together. But here's the thing. If, if Cody was still there and Punk was there, rather than them be, being one or the other, do you think they'd have had the trouble? Again, we don't know what issue. Cody, I mean, at the time we heard there were issues just because of how much money Punk was getting coming in because Tony was dying to have him. But who knows? Who maybe well, but I mean, I mean it, once that it was established, okay, we're all going to be working here together. Then do you think that of, of all of the EVPs, Cody, it would seem, would have been the level-headed one with a wrestling business background that Punk could have spoken to and could have potentially been the, yeah. the Sami Zayn of the group and get everybody back on the same page before it got to the point of no return? I also think, you know, you always hear that quote sometimes from like Kevin Nash, like, about, I guess, sitting in a booking meeting from TNA, and it was like, I realized that Jim Cornette wasn't, he was kind of the most sane one there. <laughs> he was the only one <laughs> saying things that made sense. I think you may have that, you know, if we saw what Punk's style of wrestling television seems to be, and we have a good idea what Cody's style seems to be, eventually you realize we're the only ones kind of doing this kind of thing. Maybe you work together. Yeah. But who knows? Well, we'll find out. Next year at SummerSlam. <laughs> well, we ended up, uh, we got to January of 2022 where Cody's contract status with AEW was uncertain. And Vince and his little carbuncle Bruce flew to Atlanta to go see Cody at his house. And that is something that Vince does when he really wants somebody. He says, well, let's go down there, pal. 
or up there, or whichever direction he's going. Who else has he done that for? The Warrior, right? Was that the? Well, that wasn't the first time. That was a, a reconciliation trip, right? That's um, true. That's true. That's true. Yeah, but every once in a while, you know, he will go to to where the action is. What's um, for supper? <laughs> Guess who? <laughs> <clears throat> the man who came to dinner. But uh, anyway, and Cody basically says he ended up, he left AEW over a personal issue, which was a quote, but he went to the WWE to fulfill his first dream. And now it makes it, it perfect sense why he took himself out of the AEW title picture at the start of the company. And a lot of people were saying, always, he doesn't want to be one of those guys. He's not going to put the world title on himself. He's an executive, so he's not going to book himself on top. He didn't want to win any kind of world title on any kind of mainstream television to, so as not to blunt the angle that he's obviously had in his mind for the WWE, the one he's doing now, to win the belt that they took away from my daddy in the garden before AEW even started, right? now, Because now it makes sense. I don't know. I still need to be convinced that the greatest thing in the world wouldn't have been Cody turning heel by going back on the stipulation, winning the belt, doing something evil, kissing Brandy in the middle of the well, room, no, piss off the fans. <laughs> I'm not saying it wouldn't have been great or it wouldn't have got a I don't reaction. Know. I don't know if it was his long-term thing. I mean... It makes perfect sense now. He's thought of this. This was his goddamn... It, this was... I was in the backseat of the car working for WCW thinking about Smoky Mountain Wrestling reading a road atlas. He thought of this fucking angle and he thought of the way to put it together. And he, when he got the chance to be a part of making a new company and work for a billionaire and get a lot of money, he said, I'll do everything, but I don't want to do this because it will blunt eventually where I want to go. I'll make it look... And that's part of it also, like I'm not going to be self-serving and book myself over and I will take myself out of the AEW world title picture. Then I can be the TV champion or the TNT, TBS chat, whatever the fuck, but not the world champion. It makes sense now. I don't know. The other weird thing is with this whole story about Dusty having the belt taken away from him in the garden in 78 or whatever, like they're like, Dusty had the picture above his bed and it's like a, it's not even a picture. It's just like a screen cap of the video i thought it was a picture was it a picture i think it's a picture i have to go back and check i bet it's one of those george napolitano specials but the, the concept yeah may he probably sat there and thought he sat there and thought and wouldn't it have been great if that's the one picture that my father kept over his bed here's where i think unless cody thought right away and i don't think he did that Tony's a loon and there's no way this is going to fly long-term because it's always going to be romper room back here. How did I figure out something about somebody in two phone calls that Cody Rhodes couldn't pick up on after talking to him in person? You're smarter than Cody Rhodes when it comes to the wrestling. I business. know. Well, but people, come on. Oh, Cody's smarter uh, about people than you? Is that what you're saying? I'm just saying he's been around a lot of these the modern expert? day wrestling people. Cody Rhodes, the people expert? That could be his and next let's gimmick. let's put it this way. It didn't take fucking Inspector Clouseau for <laughs> me to figure it out either. It was plain as the nose on anybody's face. But listen, they were... Even Carl Malden. They were riding a lot of positive momentum when Dynamite debuted. 
and you saw pictures of all of them at press events. You've never seen smiles on the Bucks or Cody or any of their faces like they were then. Everyone was a believer. They were all in, quite literally. Yeah. And then it slowly started to change, but I don't know if Cody... That stipulation was introduced at the beginning of Dynamite if he knew then just what was going to happen with the company. Well, but let's say he didn't have to because still he could say, okay, I've just signed a three-year contract. So at the end of the three years, I'll know whether or not this fucking guy's crazy or not. And I'm not going to use my angle until I find that out because I've still got it in my back pocket and that's my fucking jump angle. I'm telling you. I guarantee. But anyway, so at that point, I mentioned this was a two-hour documentary. And we are not even an hour and a half in. He's left AEW. He makes his surprise debut at WrestleMania. And he tearfully declares the WWE his home, and then he tears his peck. And then, once again, that was a great story. He worked the fucking hell in a cell anyway. The, the, the dramatic presentation of the match and, you know, him saying that, uh, that it was a peck well spent, that the torn peck ended up getting him over even more. And the surgery footage and the training footage. But now we're back at the Royal Rumble 2023. They were stretching the last 30 or 40 minutes of... His entire life happened in an hour and 20 minutes, and then the last year took 40 or so. So it slowed down a little bit toward the end. It wasn't any any less polished of a program. It was just less gripping because we just, we just lived through all this. I agree. The first two-thirds were really what I liked about this. But nevertheless, maybe one of these days we'll find out. We will find it with, on his deathbed. That's the one thing that I want Cody to utter in 40 or 50 years is, it was my plan all along. Well, well, you will see if that happens. That was a review of the Cody Rhodes documentary known as the Cody Rhodes Documentary. <laughs> find it wherever you find your favorite Cody Rhodes documentaries. But Jim, you can find it anywhere. But some countries, you may want to access it I don't know, I guess maybe on the WWE Network it would still be updated there. I don't know. Who knows what people want to do, but we know a place or people that can help them do it. Well, of course, if you want to do something, we know people that can help you do it. We'll just make that blanket statement. We'll sort the things out later on in the wash. But they still do have that WWE Network, don't they, in some foreign countries around the world, some international countries, if we're working for Turner instead of foreign. They've still got the network, right? Right. So whereas we get screwed over here in the United States of bygum America, people over there willy-nilly in Swaziland and Nimbibia are just chowing down on them some WWE Network and all the things that they had and I guess continue to have that we used to enjoy. Well, now that can all change, folks, because whether it's the WWE Network, whether it's Netflix, you know these people, they're getting some heat with me. These Netflix people. Apparently, they are, they're just baiting and switching and just withholding and just keeping people from being entertained. They've got all kinds of shows that they're airing all around the world that you can't get because of your location. 
And I mean, I hate that they shut down your video sharing service, Core Netflix. Well, that's right, because I had tons and tons of fine programming that could only be accessed by people in the lowermost corner of Scandinavia. But nevertheless, now that's screwed too, because it's all geo blocked around the world, all these things, right? That's a new word that I've learned. That's the word, right? Geo-blocked. Your geography makes you block. That's discrimination. <laughs> Let's for, If you want to live in Idaho and you like potatoes, I don't know, then why didn't you get your hoe and move to Idaho and, and be free to pursue a life of religious freedom? But no, if you move to Idaho, you can't see the shit that you are only supposed to see if you live in the United Kingdom. And I think this is bullshit. And that's why our friends at ExpressVPN are doing something about it. Because now it doesn't matter where Netflix wants to show you stuff. It just matters where they think you are. And you, completely free of criminality and in a legal way. This is legal, right? Yes, of, of course. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, what ExpressVPN does is legal. What comes out of your mouth, who knows? Stephen Pinu will have to check. Well, I'm just saying it's legal. You can change your location. As long as you tell the people at ExpressVPN where you want to be from to watch the program that you want to watch, they will put you there. As a matter of fact, you can pick multiple locations. You can gain access to thousands of new shows. All you have to do is tell ExpressVPN and your parole officer where you're going to be. And watch out, because if you've got one of those ankle bracelets on, as soon as you download the, the ExpressVPN app and uh, punch the button and put yourself somewhere else, chances are your ankle bracelet's going to go off. Now, now, chances are none of these things are going to happen. And of course, ExpressVPN is a reputable company that deals with you in a reputable way, and you don't have to worry about any of these kind of issues. You could just... Look for things like the Great British Sewing Bee or various programs that you wouldn't have access to here in the States. Well, but if, if you transport, transport yourself from, say, for example, uh, Upper Alabama to American Samoa so you can watch, you know, the Island Madness series, then uh, would, would that trigger your ankle bracelet? Well, it's a virtual, you're not doing anything. It's about your computer. You just happen oh. to be in front of the computer. So what if the bracelet is on the computer? How did that happen? Well, that's because they found shit on your computer that you weren't supposed to have. And you said, hey, it ain't mine. It's on the computer. So they put a bracelet <laughs> on the computer so that they know where that computer is. <laughs> that's, that's as simple as can be. But right now, folks, if you're one to watch programming, and you don't have an ankle bracelet on, we'll come back. Check the website. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. ExpressVPN.com. They may have some information on that. But what you do is you go to ExpressVPN.com, and you, you basically pick one of 94 different countries that you want to be in based on which server is currently airing Dumbo Does It Donkey Style. It works with other streaming services like your BBC iPlayer and YouTube, where you can find us. It's compatible with all your devices, the phones, the laptops, the media consoles, the smart TVs, the toasters, the washers, the dryers. It'll work with anything, and it's blazing fast speed. As a matter of fact, while it's operating, if you touch it, you're probably going to burn your fucking fingertips off. But you can stream in HD with zero buffering. 
It's going to be shiny when they get it to you. No need to buff it or polish it or anything. It just hooks right up. Comes in a box, and you stick the wire in. Boom, there you go. So, stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Fuck their fractions. Get all their content. Clean them out of content. No. Make them so broke they can't pay attention. Take everything they've got. Then how are they going to make more content? They'll make some more. They're like potato chips. They'll make more. Get your money's worth right now, folks. Don't be left out at expressvpn.com slash JCE. That's my link, expressvpn.com slash JCE. And you're going to get three months of ExpressVPN for free. Now, if you watch a hundred shows that you can't normally watch because you get this, and that's over three months, well, that would be you're going to watch 7,000 programs and have a 33 and a third percent chance of remembering what you watched if you get expressvpn.com slash JCE. Three months free extra on top of what you're getting already when you get it. Got it? Good. That's right. ExpressVPN. And Jim, as you always say, this is my show and we will expressly move on here and expressly get... I don't get... always say that. I just say it whenever I need some help. Well, I think we all need some help because we watched another edition of Monday Night Raw. So let's try to expressly get through this review and <sighs> talk about the high points. And there were high points. And the low points. <laughs> and there were low well... points. Well, let's just make some observations about those things. For the Labor Day edition of Raw, I felt like I was going into labor. You could have you could have gotten pregnant, carried the baby to term, and had it by the time this program started and ended. But it was the payback from payback edition. From hell, daddy. Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, what, what have we done to you? One of the great wrestling towns of the United States. Um, but there was... My favorite match of anything, any program of the week was on here, as well as some exposition in the Bloodline saga. We're still not sure who's on whose side. So they started with Jey Uso, who, as we will recall when last we left our space travelers, Jey Uso had been signed to Raw courtesy of the manipulations and ministrations of the American Nightmare Cody Rhodes, right? So that's right. He went to Jim Crockett's office and convinced him to open that checkbook one more time. And yep. here's Jay Uso right there, right there off of South Boulevard in that converted convenience store. Um, but Jay has not been given a, uh, a locker yet. So he had to come through the crowd like, like the plumber on the other program. No, not it, like the plumber though. Cause he gets a reaction. You see the well, people yeah. jumping up and down with him. It was crazy. It, it, the the reaction on the plumber's entrance is for the trogs. Um, the reaction on Jey Uso's entrance, they had signs. They were happy about it. They were doing the waves. And, you know, there was jubilation in the air, in the atmosphere, and the Uso chants and blah, blah, blah. And he gets in the ring and vents a little bit about having to fight his family every week you know, over on the other program on SmackDown, but Cody called him, and now he's on Monday nights by himself. And here comes Sami Zayn's music. <laughs> I fucking... Sami Zayn, I think if Sami Zayn had only been partners with Zbigniew Brzezinski in the old days, they could have solved every bit of the 
peace problems around the world. Because Sammy's always the conciliator, right? And he's telling Jay, hey, you're going to have enemies in the locker room. People are going to be upset about what you've done in the past, but I'm happy you're here. And he says, I'm proud of you, Jay. And he offers his hand. And Jay won't shake. And Sammy says, okay, that, that's fine. I understand. He needs some time. I'll give you some time. Whatever. He turns around to leave. And Jay calls him back. And they hug each other. And it gets a big pop. And then Jay walks back to the back where he didn't come from. I guess he left his bag in the back, and then he traveled around to the front of the building, come through the people, but now he's walking to the back. And he goes past Drew McIntyre, and they have a face-off, and then Sammy's telling Drew, no, nah, come on, he just got here. And then Riddle comes out and makes a mean face at Jay, and Sammy's like, come on, he just got here now. And at that point, between the payback package that started the program and what I just described, when I pretty much imparted all the information in that promo that was given, right? The basic points, that was it. I mean, it took a few minutes to get there. They gave it some time, but yeah. That's what there. I'm saying. We were 17 minutes into the show between the package and this interview where they hugged each other. Uh, but I mean, but so Sammy again. The, the peacemaker over here, and Jay is now on Raw. Your thoughts? I thought it was an okay segment. You know, the crowd was really into it. And also, if Jay Uso is going to be on Raw, you kind of have to get this out of the way right now. Do you think it was a little stagey when... <laughs> because have you noticed now, it, it in the WWE television universe in the past, they always micromanage these things so nobody is in the way of a shot and nobody's going down the, the ramp one way when somebody's coming down the ramp the other way, unless they are supposed to have pre-planned and potentially stagey looking interaction. But now over the past few weeks on this, uh, this program and or SmackDown, people are just meeting in the aisleway all over the place. Have you noticed that? I have noticed that. Yes. It's it's one of the the writers the place get to an be. idea. It's the place to be. Well, the writers get an idea, and then every other writer steals the goddamn first writer's idea, and they're all doing this. Oh, that's good. I'll do that over here. I mean, nevertheless, that's Joe and Punk. I mean, not Joe and Punk. Joe and uh, MJF started the same. Yeah, way, well, well the they're doing it all over the place now. It's a it's a thing. It's a fad. Although I think it's interesting with Jay Uso because again, you have that dynamic. Of this guy that was all in with the bloodline. All of a sudden now he has nothing to do with them. And he's on his own. And he needs it. And, and you know what? For everything you want to say about WWE, they still have classic baby faces in certain respects. Yes. And he needs the other baby faces to accept him. So I kind of like the dynamic of people that he's had problems with walking by him. And everyone's not going to just forgive him right away. Everyone well, remembers. Well, yes, I, I agree with that. And and uh, the dusty turn, or the uh, the time when Ole uh, turned babyface to then turn back on Dusty. He had to be a babyface for a year, and he had to get Mr. Wrestling 2 to like him, and he had to get Tommy Rich to like him. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying suddenly they have started doing this thing that never, ever happens where these people are walking past each other. And it always happens to fit the story perfectly. 
If they wanted to do that, they should have done a couple of weeks where people are just walking past each other and don't give a fuck. That's what I... They're being obvious. That's obvious. Captain Obvious. All right. Major you know what's, uh, Oblivion. What, Major what? Oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> and, but we all work for general disorders, so... <laughs> That's right. All right. And Sergeant next, McCoy. Don't forget about Sergeant McCoy. Now, well, how can I forget Sergeant McCoy? He's the foot soldier in all of this. Uh, the next match, or the match, it was a tornado tag team match with Matt Riddle and Drew McIntyre, the aforementioned, against the Viking Raiders. And, of course, the tornado tag match means all four guys are in the ring, and it also means no disqualification. Anything goes. Lazy booking. And the Vikings put Riddle through a table, one, two, three, to win the match. And now we're 35 minutes into the show. And apparently, from what I'm gathering, we have not seen the end of Seth freaking Rollins and Shaky Nakamura. Because now, the, apparently, this is continuing. They did another confrontation, an interview, and out, you know, Seth wants another another match he he wants to get even for he won anyway but he still wants to get even but shaky won't give him the match have you noticed nakamura makes weirder faces than kenny does he just he's twitching and convulsing he looks unwell i'm worried about oh, this oh you guy. stop it a week ago on the show you said he looked elderly he does. and now you're saying he looks unwell he come looks on. elderly, frail, and unwell. Oh, come on. He's wearing a body suit. He has some type of neurological disorder that he twitches and convulses, and he's probably wearing a bodysuit because he's got some kind of colostomy bag or something oh, going stop. on. See, where or are you getting this from? No. Something going on here. What the fuck? There's nothing going on. Well, you got that right. Not no. in this segment. <laughs> That's not what I meant. There's nothing bad going on with the elderly Nakamura. <laughs> the elderly, he's... <laughs> I thought he's going to have a retirement match. It's mandatory. The State Athletic Commission won't license him. He's too old. They got in a sloppy fight and got pulled apart. And then Shaky had a match with Ricochet. And Seth Franklin Rollins came in. And they had another pull apart. And I just, I worry about Shaky's fucking potential health in all of this. And think, you know, elder abuse is a, a oh, serious issue. It. Enough. This is ridiculous. But let me ask you this. He beat Ricochet here. Remember you were asking before SummerSlam, why would they have Logan Paul against this guy? And I said, I think they just want to get Logan Paul a really nice win. Look at how Ricochet's been used since then. Yeah, they got him a really nice win. Well, well, that's... <laughs> It was uh, Logan Paul, they're going to give him a favor because he says, hey, this kid does all these flips, we can do some cool stuff. And because Logan Paul's in a position where he'd rather wrestle two or three times a year and do cool stuff and make big money for a pay-per-view than actually do this three or four times a week, you know, they say, okay, we'll let you have the match with the underneath gas so you can do some jumping and flipping. Anyway, talking about the jumping and the flipping. The people are celebrating Brian because the Judgment Day has got all kinds of gold. There were Rhea's a champion. Finn and Damian Priest are the tag team champions. 
Dominic is the NXT North American champion. They've got a, it's like the modern day horseman. They say, I get which, which one's Oli, or do, do we just skip ahead to the Luger contingent? Or the Roma contingent. No, I think it's a oh, great God. visual, though. The four of them with the belts out there, with the lighting and everything, that really works well. And they've been together, well, together. They've been together, together. They've been together. Together forever. <laughs> they've been together for a Wherever long enough time we now. <laughs> we used to. They've been together for a long enough time now that it's been established they were a thing. So it all works. Like, we're kind of used yeah. to them now. Well, the, the group, they look great. And as I've mentioned, Finn... I can accept him in the group with the other really cool-looking people. Um, and, you know, they do have the the gold. And now they were telling the story that Finn and Damian were happier with each other now that they're the tag team champions. And Rhea's there saying that they're a family. And, of course, they're still... Not only are the people still doing the booing with uh, Dominic, but also they're riding that audio board like a fucking bronco buster and it's amazing the effect that they can if you notice when the next guy in the judgment day talks they sound perfectly normal on microphone but dom is exceptionally low and they're cranking the crowd audio up so you hear the booing even more and it's it's a nice effect uh but have you noticed apparently and we've been talking about this it should happen Rhea Ripley's the boss here now of the Judgment Day. She's starting to tell more and more people what to do. Get your act together. Here's an ultimatum. You do this. And I think that's the best thing. Yeah, it works best, actually. It actually works best for them. And, and it works best for her because she's established herself as mommy beyond, you know, yeah, being the sexual dominatrix of Dominic. Just the idea that she's the boss of this. It works. And there also, this is the... Monday night version of the bloodlines. So you got a group that everything revolves around, but then in the middle of the problem, cause Rhea's not happy about Uso getting the attention because they're better than the bloodline. And then here comes JD McBuckethead. Holy God. How does he walk straight? Will you stop with a head that's multiple times too many <laughs> sizes for the rest of his body. Multiple times. Will you multiple come on times? <laughs> He, I'm surprised he doesn't walk with a lean like he's got a metal plate in his head and he's walking past a magnet. It's a slightly larger head, but it's, it's not it's a, a bobblehead or anything. It's an oddly and off-puttingly large head. And misshapen while we're at it. Misshapen? Hold on, now you've gone a completely different way. Where, what did you see that I missed? Well, he looks... Is there a dent? He, he looks sort of like if you shaved Fuzzy Cupid, the big forehead and the smaller... Mandib mandible area? I don't know. Fuzzy Cupid, ladies and gentlemen, there's your classic wrestling quotient for today's show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm tell me I'm tell me when I'm telling lies. If you look up Fuzzy Cupid, imagine if you shaved him. All right, anyway. But he had brought out a new briefcase for Damien Priest. It said Senior Money in the Bank. And so apparently now maybe Damien's starting to warm up to J.D. McFunco Pop or whatever. But then here comes Sami Zayn, and Owens ain't there. And good thing, too, because he'd probably get pissed at Sami doing all this conciliatory stuff and getting in the middle of everything. And he comes out and says what he sees is 
five giant turds in the ring. I'm pretty sure that's his version of Suffer and Succotash that was given to Roman Reigns a, a number of years ago. Some I don't think Sami Zayn would have said, I see five giant turds in the ring unless he was given a script. But he made a challenge for later on versus Dominic, and J.D. McBuckethead stepped in and accepted. Now I'm like, oh, joy. We're good. But then this segment ended strong for my own personal entertainment. Did you hear what Sammy said at the end? I don't recall. And this is live television, and it, it, it tickled me. But what Sammy was going to say was, I'm so glad, to J.D. McDonough's talking, I'm so glad you opened your mouth because nobody deserves an ass-kicking more than you. But what he said was, I'm so glad you opened your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. Excuse me. <laughs> Maybe he could work with that guy from... Bear country or whatever that said he likes to eat ass on fucking collision. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad you opened your ass there, pal. Because nobody deserves an ass kicking. If he'd have just reversed it, if he just said, I'm so glad you opened your ass because nobody deserves a mouth kicking more than <laughs> that would have been. He, he, ah, <laughs> <laughs> Open your ass. That's a new one. <laughs> it's the it's the little things. All right. We gotta find our entertainment where we can on this program, folks. So Gunther did a nice promo about being the longest reigning intercontinental champion in history. If he wins this match, he's gonna have here tonight. Did you hear they got a quote from Honky Tonk Man? Not on Raw, but somebody at a I don't know they saw him a convention or a goddamn grocery store. I don't know where they saw him. But somebody said, what do you think about Gunther breaking your record as the longest reigning intercontinental champion of all time? He said, I don't work for those people anymore. It's their belt. They can do whatever the fuck they want. <laughs> wow. Hey, a firm grip on the subject from Wayne. As, uh, <laughs> as always. As always. So anyway, then they had Zoe against Shayna. And once they got finished doing that, we went back into the judgment day. In well, we went back we went back into their locker room. We didn't go actually inside, although there's a couple of members that well, nevertheless. That's gonna be a video release. Inside yeah. Judgment Day. <laughs> Voiced over by Desiree Cousteau. <laughs> All right, so Finn is now already making the noise and the motions that he wants to bring J.D. Funko into the Judgment Day full-time. But Priest is not sure about that. And Dominic said, I'm okay with whatever you guys want. And then Rhea comes, she's sitting there, and she says, oh, let's do this. She's the thoughtful one. She's the, the brains of this outfit. But then it must have been one of those nights because she says, well, let's see how he does against Finn tonight. And then she sees Finn sitting there in front of her. She's oh, sorry, I'm Sammy tonight, Finn. And then she recovered. And Finn and Priest leave. And then Rhea tells Dominic, make sure everything with JD goes according to plan tonight. Dum -ba -ba -ba. So that way, and then we had Raquel and Chelsea. 
And then that was over with. What was next? Ms. TV. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know what? Can I just say something? You please do. I like the Miz. I have been telling you that he's not as bad as you think. I have said that sometimes he's booked bad or with the wrong people, but if he's in the right situation, he's good. I have no defense for whatever this was. <laughs> okay, and I know what this was. And and I actually, I'm not as as down on him as you may have been about it because he gave it the old college try. Now, there's something to be said for realizing probably halfway through the act of something that it's fucking rotten. That you are literally squatting down and shitting a goddamn barbed wire wrapped football right in front of everybody and still going through with it as best you can. His premise that I don't know whether this was one of the entertainment writers or whether this was, you know, the Miz, he's been in movies and TV and commercials and, you know, on the cover of fucking cereal boxes, he's got some ideas. Maybe he came up with this concept and he workshopped it with the writers or whatever. But I bet you a lot of people were convinced this is going to be the greatest performance piece that we've ever seen anybody do on a wrestling program. Because the idea was that he was going to bring out John Cena and not only interview John Cena, but he was going to fucking yell at John Cena and read John Cena the riot act and tell John Cena what was the matter with him and how to modify his behavior and how that he was the best one, blah, blah, blah. The problem was they didn't have John Cena. So what he did was, and also because, of course, this was, see, this was the genius of this idea, Brian, in concept, in theory. It'll get heat on the Miz for being a heel because John Cena ain't there, but he's acting like he is. And a lot of people on Twitter were saying, oh, Cornette, you got to fucking, you got to treat the Miz same as you treat the other people that work with the Invisible Man. I will give Miz this. He didn't take any bumps for the Invisible Man. It was strictly a one-sided squash. And I can tolerate that. The Invisible Man shoved him. That's not one-sided. Well, he didn't take a bump for him. It, it could have turned the air conditioning on in the in the arena, and it could, it could have, you know, a strong wind. <laughs> really? A strong breeze? A strong breeze. Well, look at Miz. The state of him. He, he won a legal battle recently. He sued his body for non-support. Oh, come on. <laughs> but basically, his story was he was robbed at payback, not only by L.A. Knight, but by John Cena, the crooked referee. So he introduced, I'm going to bring him out here and tell him what I think of him. John Cena, and the music plays, and the crowd goes batshit, and nobody comes out. And, of course, there's Michael Cole going, I can't see him. And the, the, uh, one of the problems with this, among the many, was that they had the floor cameraman actually panning back and forth in the empty entranceway and then running down the the aisle toward the ring like he normally does when Cena's doing his entrance, but of course there was nothing there. I understand the heel wanting to fuck with the people and tease they're going to see their favorite and then they don't, and he's going to run their favorite down. 
did he pay the cameraman to be involved in the cameraman on the side of the promotion, which is supposed to be the good guys? That was a little odd. So they had the Miz TV set up with the chairs and et cetera, and he puts Cena in the chair and he talks to him. And he says, since the fans apparently can't see you, I'll interpret or hear you, I'll interpret. And then you know, he, he did as good as he could with something that was terrible. I mean, this was like, you know, Clint Eastwood talking to uh, the invisible Barack and it, Obama. The empty chair. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was that. I mean, he did better than that. I mean, that's actually maybe my only problem. Not my only problem. But that was one of my biggest problems. He acted the same way and sold the push and everything. Same facial reactions from the invisible man than any of the actual opponents we've seen him in there with. I, there was more fire. I, th I think maybe he thought he might be able to whip the Invisible Man because there was more fire there. He was more aggressive. He had more bass in his voice. But no, it. I mean, he was trying to yell at John Cena at one point, that he was trying to talk to him again, that he was yelling at the fans. And that's why I said when he was yelling at the fans at, at some point, I could kind of, I believed based on being in, positions like that where shit's going south in the ring your butthole starts quivering puckering a little bit and i think he was trying to try a little too hard to make up for the fucking ground he wasn't gaining with with this whole thing and then he kicked john Cena out of his ring but then he got mad that he wouldn't go then he slapped him and then the usa network was trying as hard as they could to bleep the shit out of holy shit and then, basically, they got in a skirmish, and Miz gave the invisible Cena his full Nelson finish. And then, at, at that point, tried to get serious and challenge L.A. Knight to a rematch. And, and uh, not good. Miz and L.A. Knight have both been pretty good for the past couple of weeks. This he he tried. This was going to be his. You know, avant-garde Nosferatu classic, and it turned into Plan 9 from Outer Space. The problem with avant-garde is very frequently the people who participate in that avant-garde a clue. <clears throat> Thank you. You know the biggest problem, Brian? I know the biggest is problem. that with this angle that they were doing here in the ring where Miz was talking to a person that wasn't there is because Miz was hearing him. Miz was hearing what he said, but the people, the people couldn't hear what the invisible man was saying. And that, you know, that took a lot of the, the fucking impact away from it. That took a lot of the oomph off of it because there, there's Miz reacting to all these things that the people just can't hear. And you know why that was, don't you? Because did you see, did when they got the close-up of Miz, did you see what, what was going on there? What was going on where? In, in Miz's ears. In his ears? I didn't see anything going on. I didn't look for his ears, but what was going on? They got a close-up, and there Miz had in his ears the incredible Raycon everyday wireless earbuds. And that's how he was able to hear what John Cena, the Invisible Man, was saying. Because Cena didn't have to fly all the way around the world from his movie set just to come right there to Charlotte, North Kakalaki, or wherever they were at, 
Instead, he could just talk into his little orphan Annie decoder ring, and it would be transmitted around the world. Via telephone and via telegraph. telephone around the world, right to the Raycon wireless earbuds that were in the ears of the Miz in the ring live on Monday Night Raw. Because after all, Brian, that's what people listen to various things on the Raycons. You can listen to anything you want. That's what they say. You listen to music while you're cooking or flittering around the house. You can listen to podcasts and talk. You can you can listen to invisible people speaking to you that no one else can hear. Well, they wouldn't it's actually the- be invisible. You'd be hearing a live person, but to the average person who doesn't know that you're hearing something, they would think it was an invisible person. If you can only hear them, but you can't see them, aren't they invisible? Are we invisible? People are listening to this podcast right now. I can't see you. Can you see me? I can't see you either. Well, goddamn, there you go. Another case of there you are. Folks, with the Raycon's everyday earbuds, they've got the optimized gel tips in a range of sizes. Whether you've got small, teeny, tiny little ear holes or even these big jug head, maybe you got J.D. McFunco pop size ears to go along with a preternaturally large head, they're going to be comfortable and they won't fall out. You'll have to pry these things out with a crowbar before you'll get them loose. You get No, they will become plate. loose when you're ready for them to be loose and they'll come right out of your ear, no crowbar needed. Well, you just, you just will them because they're part of your head anyway, right? They're, they're growing into your mind, so you just will them pop out and they'll just pew! Well, it's not that either. It's just, I'm ready to remove them from my ear. Look, I did it. It's that simple. Huh, that sounds boring. You get eight hours of playtime and 32 hours of battery life, though, and that's certainly not boring because why you could listen to War and Peace on an audiobook with that kind of battery life, and you get quality audio folks at half the price of other premium audio brands because Raycon's not going to bend you over a barrel and give it to you the hard way. They're going to be nice to you. They got the customizable sound profiles, three of them, the earbud tap functions. You can just tap that earbud. The sap starts running right out. Noise isolation mode, awareness mode. You will know everything there is to know in the universe. When you activate the awareness mode, it instantly taps into the microfilm at the Library of Congress and instantly every piece of collected knowledge known to humanity is zapped right into your head. That is exactly... pick up on it. That is exactly not what happens, but you will be aware of your surroundings. And how dangerous they may or may not be. You get high-fidelity audio. They're they're water and splash resistant. So if you dunk your head in a bathtub, well, I guess the, you know, you'll still be playing a nice little jaunty tune when they carry you out with a sheet topped over you. But right now, folks, school is back in session. What does that have to do anything or have to do with anything? I'll tell you because they're having their annual back-to-school sale over at Raycon. And now all the little crumb snatchers and the rug rats can go to school and brag about the great new everyday wireless earbuds that they've got. And they'll probably make such a big deal out of them that some of the tough kids in class will beat them up and steal them. And then you'll have to buy more. No. But because they're so cheap at half the price of other premium audio brands, you can get one for your kid. The kid can get beat up and robbed and then you get another set. No, no, no. That's not the way it works. You can buy as many as you want for anyone you want, your whole family, all the kids, the kids in the neighborhood. But nobody's got to get beat up. There are no beatings attached to this. In fact, it may make you popular with the other kids if they see you got some 
really cool Raycon earbuds. Well, that's yeah. You'd be walking down the, uh, the hallway there in school the after history class or down the aisle or whatever. You're going to be going, hey, look at me. I'm bopping to my own beat because I got the Raycon wireless earbuds. And man, you'll look as stupid as Miz did when he was talking to an invisible son of a bitch that wasn't there. But you'll you'll be happy because you're listening to your own soundtrack. Anyway, folks, again, back to school. Learn something. Go right now. Do not delay. Go to buyraycon, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com, buyraycon.com slash J-C-E today. You're going to get 20% off site-wide plus free shipping. That means you get one pair, you get five pairs, you get something else. You get some rutabagas. You get a dozen kumquats, whatever they sell on this website. You're going to get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash jce so and hey here's something else to think about if your kids get beat up in school for wearing these fine earbuds and they're taken advantage of by criminal elements when they when they punch the kid in the side of the head they're going to hurt their fist on these raycons just so you know it's not the way i would look at it but raycon a fine earbud for music and and audio fans of all ages and beatings and no beatings no beatings. No fans of beatings and no actual beatings. But Raycon. Not. Can we somehow end this? Raycon! What's the promo code? <laughs> Buyraycon.com slash JCE. Do not beat anyone. That's Except right. you'll you'll never beat these prices. I'll tell you what, it's like a sore dick and a busted drum. You just can't beat it. I don't know about that, but one thing uh, you can't beat is WWE Raw, unless you're looking for entertainment or something. <laughs> you, can't, you can't beat Raw for all your boredom needs. Uh, Sami Zayn wrestled JD Funko. And again, the rest of him looks like a high school kid. and But his little tiny, teeny, tiny feet and his little leg, and then his body kind of gets bigger as it goes upwards, and then finally... It culminates with the blossoming of that giant bison-like head. I don't bison-like. You know, you've seen them big bisons, a big yeah, mantar. Right? You, yeah, you, you yeah. can see this guy yeah, sitting on top of mantar's head. I, I see. Yes, I can see this guy <laughs> sitting on top of mantar's head, on sitting on his face, on his head, something. So, Sammy Zayn. Whether you know, regardless of what you have to say about the fellow, he's been a top star for a while now. He got over, he's been in the main events, he got a main event up in Montreal. He's been used quite well, former tag team champion. He just got beat by JD McFunko Pop. One, two, three. He beat up Dominic, Sammy did, at ringside to get a little something, and then got schoolboyed by JD one, two, three. And then he beat up Dominic, Sammy beat up Dominic again, and then J.D. intervened and told Dominic to get out of there, and then Sammy beat up J.D. So he beat up everybody, but he lost the match. Because they're... Is, why? What do they see that I'm not seeing that J.D. McDonough suddenly comes in here looking like a fucking overgrown 12-year-old and... 
suddenly he's in the mix of the potentially in the the Judgment Day, the top heel group in the company uh, on this show at least. What the fuck is happening here? I can't explain this, but like you said, nothing against the guy, but why him for this? I don't... I have no idea. Out of all the people in NXT that you could program with the Judgment Day or use with the Judgment Day, he's the one they decided to go with? Maybe there's something there we just haven't seen yet. But that's what I say. You gotta the visual has to fit too. And would this guy be hanging out with the cool guys and the cool girl with the tattoos and the leather and No, he'd be in the back aisleway of the goddamn library with his nose stuck in a book. Anyway, they went to the back and the judgment day was congratulating JD McDonough on his big win. Now bear in mind JD got the ever loving stuffing kicked out of him. And Dominic got beat up too, but he did get the one, two, three, so they're congratulating him. And then Dominic says to the others, I'll, I'll catch up with you. I got to do something. And he just so happens he sees Jey Uso standing there, minding his own business 10 feet away, apparently not ever dreaming he'd be on television just because there was a TV camera shooting these fucking fuckers having a conversation next to me. But anyway, Dominic. This was quite lengthy because Dominic gave the spiel. Hey, man, I know what you're going through. Our Hall of Fame fathers, the family. We didn't have a good family. <sighs> the upshot of this thing was Dominic was saying, hey, if you ever need a family, the Judgment Day, we're here. You know, he's inviting him in. He was doing it very humbly. But this was not the most passionate delivery or I don't even mean passionate, but not the most emotional baby he was reading it off the cue cards it sounded like is what i'm trying to say because it was such flowery verbiage that i don't think he was completely comfortable and it didn't sound natural did it to you am i just being picky i mean maybe a little picky but you're also not wrong well good i get to have it both ways you get to have it both ways acdc that's what she said and then finally, we got to the only thing on this program that I actually wanted to see ahead of time, or actually wanted to see when I found out it was happening. Gunther and Gable for the Intercontinental title. And goddammit, again, somebody named Williams needs to be involved in this. I cannot... It, it, I was programmed that Williams comes after Gunther and Gable in my childhood, and I can't avoid it. So, besides the the restrictions slash handicaps slash stumbling blocks that the WWE puts in the way of a good television match, such as going to break after a minute and a half and then coming back and going to break after about four minutes, so you can't fucking really involve yourself in the thing. I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow. Blow. This was a an excellent match. And Gunther, again, never has a bad match, never does anything he shouldn't do. His style is perfect for his look. His look is perfect for his style. His basics, his timing, his technique, for me, are a pleasure to watch because it's so rare and unusual anymore that somebody actually works and looks and acts and moves like a professional wrestler. And he he doesn't... I don't know how he manages not to ever get any on him. 
but he never looks stupid except when he is doing it to himself in the way of a heel being foiled by a baby face, but he never looks like he's in a stupid position he shouldn't be in. And they put everybody else in one of those from time to time, but he can take care of himself. And Gable, athletically, physically, his work, he's a feisty fighter. Whereas Gunther was stronger and meaner, Gable has fire and emotion. And he's a, a good selling baby face. And he knows because he's smaller, he's got to sell the stuff a little bit bigger, but then he's got to use his speed and quickness and, you know, uh, perspicacity. And uh, so they just had a great match and they saved the big, not only saved the big stuff for toward the end, but they made the big stuff plausible and they got pops from the people going into it. You know, everybody's on Gable's side, but nobody thought that he was going to win. By the time they got pretty deep into this and going into false finishes, you could tell from the people the way they were reacting, they were starting to buy, you know what, they they might do this. They were with it. And, and they were fluid in what they were doing when Gable gave Gunther a German suplex on the floor and then grabbed him and as best he could rolled him in to beat the count so he could try to win. But when he rolled right in, Gunther was coming up and he rolled right into a power bomb of Gunther's and got a big pop. And Gable again managed to, and in a plausible way, hit the superplex off the top and then the big headbutt and a two count. And then he goes to the ankle lock and the fans are going batshit. And they go back and forth. And then again, Gable, Gunther, even after he's lost weight, got to weigh 250, right? Because he's so tall, 240. Gable is Germaning him with a bridge and he's doing it as a deadlift. He's amazing. And he's getting big pops on these things. And then they did a slick little thing where Gable goes for the moonsault off the top, but Gunther raised his boot, and Gable landed and caught him in an ankle lock. And then by now, Gunther's really fucking selling, and he's fucking, you see it on his face, and the people are up. Will he tap? But no, Gunther kicked out and got the sleeper. But Chad rolled him up backwards, but then Gunther suplexed him on his head. And safely, by the way, I watched the replay and he had him trapped and he had a hold of him. He didn't drop him on his head. It looked like it. And then a power bomb and a big fucking clothesline worthy of Bradshaw. And one, two, three. It was a super match. It was plausible the way they did it, even with the size difference. Everybody's work was right where it should be and then they they have gable's family the next shot that's the thing the next shot after he lost was his daughter crying in the crowd yes his mother wasn't there laughing waiting for her spot his kids were crying at ringside there's a difference so that again is exact i still hate everything about the way that gable's being presented with the partner and the girl and the shoosh and the thank you but the people are liking him because he's 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 a feisty, spunky underdog that you can get with when he's in there selling for a big fucking monster like this. And Gunther is, as I've said, maybe the world's most perfect wrestler today. 
Not named Rhea Ripley, maybe. Not, not named Rhea Ripley. And actually, actually, when you think about it, Gunther is more experienced and on every level as far as in-ring than Rhea, so he's probably a better wrestler all around, but at the same time, I don't see he's going to be a movie star, whereas Rhea, Rhea Ripley will be. But they're very close in their respective fields. Really, really good stuff. And, you know, it's one of those things that other than the opening shush for his music when he <laughs> comes out, there was none of the silliness when people always say, what do you want? You hate everything. You, I want this. Serious physical matches the fans are actually into that don't get into comedy spots. The usual tropes that everyone does in the middle of their matches. Good storytelling. That clothesline at the end looked great. Keep it in the ring when you can, so when you don't, it means something. Hopefully none of your work looks phony. They showed his family at the end. His wife looked upset. She was consoling two of the kids. The other kid was sitting next to her crying. Again, big difference than the partying parents we see on fucking AEW Dynamite. It's like yeah, they're all ready to participate. Exactly. They're all, they're all in on it. Here we are, ready to go. Come on over here so I can do my spot. And all she had to do, that uh, Gable's wife, was just take that hat pin and just jab that kid in the ass with it. No, it stop it, crying. stop it, stop it, stop. All she had to do was not tell her daughter that daddy's going to be okay right away. But uh, one day they'll uh, be smart Same enough. thing, physical torment, mental torment, whatever floats your boat. No torment at all, and Raw wasn't too tormental uh, this week. <laughs> Any uh, closing Raw thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think they should have cooked this one a little longer. I would have sent it back to the kitchen. But I loved Gunther and Gable. And Williams. And Williams. Well, that was this week's uh, WWE Raw. Before we move on from WWE, because a bunch of listeners sent this in, so let me ask you about this to get it out of the way. Did you see Brian Alvarez's advice for Austin Theory? No, I actually, I may have missed this. I have not heard that young Brian had advice for Austin Theory. People have been sending this in. They want to know your thoughts. It's been a very popular topic called the Cornet Facebook group. Now, and apparently, as we've talked about here recently, Brian Alvarez thinks he's a wrestler too, right? Because Well, he's the, been a wrestler. He's wrestled. Well, yeah, he's wrestled for promotions that, you know, want publicity in his newsletter or whatever. But certainly to God, he doesn't think that he's on the, on the same plane, the same level, the same rarefied air as Austin Theory, who's one of the five best young wrestlers in the business today and as a future WWE world champion in the next three to five years, does he? Well, again, we haven't heard what he said. Maybe he has very valuable advice. Maybe you're going to hear this and go, you know, I always knew that Alvarez had a good head on his shoulders. Okay, well, and, and at least it's not like JD's. He can <laughs> hold his up straight. I knew you were going to fucking go there. But anyway, back to this. Here's a quote. Austin Theory... If you're listening right now, whoever's telling you to do this, stop listening, okay? Stop working this absolutely, positively, boring-ass 1990s style of wrestling. Oh, my God. Like, it's not the right kind of heat. It doesn't work in 2023. You're getting lapped by young guys all over the world. What? He's getting, who is lapping Austin Theory at the near top of the cards in the biggest company in the business who are telling him to work that way because that's the right way to work. That's the thing that makes him, he's actually 
talented enough and good enough and mentally has the wherewithal to be able to work like the guys in the 90s and 80s. Nobody uh, on a mainstream basis today, practically even in the big companies, has that talent. He has it naturally. The timing and the fucking grasp of, of psychology of what he should do, that he's outperforming everybody, not only in the biggest company in the world, but in every other place that we see, everybody of, of equivalent amount of experience to him, he's better than. He stood out since day one because of that. He has the physique and the size and the look and the promo and the attitude and the wrestling talent. And this numbnuts idiot is telling him, don't do, don't do so good. Do the shit that all these other little children do around the world and all these outlaw promotions that books me. Don't do what your employers that are paying you, I would assume in the high six figures, and it'll probably pretty soon be seven when he's world champion. Don't do what they want you to do, what you're so good at. Do what all these other jack-offs that are never going to sniff the WWF unless they buy a ticket do. That's Brian Alvarez's advice. Thanks a lot, pal. What the fuck is the matter with him? Who is lapping Austin Theory? It may maybe MJF. What about Wheeler Yuta? Da Daniel only... Garcia. Daniel no, no, no. Garcia. Daniel Garcia and Wheeler Yuta are lapping Austin Theory. They're the valet parkers. They're driving around back and forth to the parking lot, parking the fucking expensive cars that Austin Theory is buying with the money he's making because he's a fucking superstar. Good God, what a moronic thing to say. The idea, again, he called it absolutely positively boring-ass 1990s style of wrestling. Is that part of the problem when you have people that especially people that are really into the gymnastics aspect of wrestling. The marks that want to go and just do what they have fun with doing, regardless of whether it draws any money, makes any sense, or is insulting to the business. That's where Uncle Dave, for whatever point he lost his mind, and his little stepson here, Brian the Brain Alvarez, and all of the rest of their friends and the people that they like, that's the deal. No, we want to go do all these cool moves and do flips and 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 have fun with our friends. But if somebody gets serious or points out that they look like shit, that nobody can visually take them seriously, or that their work looks phony and won't convince anybody, or just for the whole wrestling is supposed to be silly and populated by a bunch of children crowd, that's good. But don't fucking ruin... This guy's career, because that's what you think wrestling is. Unfortunately, that's what most of wrestling has become, which is why we are now talking about an ever-decreasing number of people that can stomach to watch this shit. What advice would you give Austin Theory? Keep doing exactly what he's doing. Apply himself to every opportunity he gets. Get there early. If you can get into production meetings, if they'll let you do that so you can see how the show is put together, talk to the announcers, feed them points you'd like them to make about what you're doing, study the technical aspects, and watch the agents. Because as young as he is, after he finishes being the world champion in three to five years, then he may very well be 
because he seems to have a head for the in-ring of the wrestling business, at least. I don't know about booking. He's only in his 20s or whatever. But he could be a behind-the-scenes guy that would have a career there at that company for 30 fucking years, if he so chooses. Well, Jim, wrestling fans always have to choose what they will or won't watch, and we have the ratings for this past week's AEW Collision, which of course was a notable episode, which began with Tony <laughs> Khan's announcement of firing CM Punk. Well, and again, we have said that the Saturday night show was going to have issues, and this happened to be the, the next Saturday night after we, uh, the, the last one was what, SummerSlam, this was Payback. So collision was it up. Certainly against, was. Yeah, it certainly was. It was <laughs> payback, and payback is hell, Daddy. But this was against not only the payback premium live event, but also some football. I don't know who's playing. I'm I'm not into the football. But last time that happened, I believe they did instead of six or seven hundred thousand people, they did four hundred thousand people, or four hundred and something thousand. But they held but them. It, but they held them. And that's what we talked about. We've not only been mentioning that Collision is the show that not only holds, but in a few cases has increased the viewers from beginning to end. May not be static all the way through, but there'd be more, as many or more at the end as there was at the beginning, which never happens on Wednesday nights because of what's on the program. And we also said that it will be interesting to see how quickly, now that the people know they're not going to get punk and that the style of the program is going to change from what we've been at least led to believe it was going to be, that Saturday night would be the wrestling show for the wrestling fans and Wednesday night would be the gymnastics for the fucking kids. And that's out the window. So we's, how long is it going to take for Collision to turn into Rampage? I think we got an answer already. Well, this past week's AEW Collision, September 2nd, again against WWE Payback on TNT, was watched on average by 345,000 viewers. Now, if that don't sound bad enough, tell us, Brian, where they started in quarter one when the first thing they saw was the announcement where Tony Khan said, I was scared for my life. And a fired CM Punk. And as we're doing this, ladies and gentlemen, think of all the various movies that TNT could put in this time slot to get numbers better than this. The show opened. These were compiled by WrestleNomics. The show opened 8 to 8.15 p.m. quarter one. Tony Khan firing CM Punk video, followed by Ricky Starks' confrontation with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and the return of Brian Danielson. 472,000 viewers, as well as, and this is important for this week, 234,000 in the key demo. And that 472,000 is about, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, pretty much what the average was the last when they were against SummerSlam. They did 400-something thousand over the course of the program. Yeah, it was somewhere in the mid-fours maybe, but again, all throughout the show. For here, September 2nd, quarter 2, 8.15 8.30 p.m., the John Moxley backstage promo, followed by Billy Gunn and the Acclaimed versus Daniel Garcia and 2.0 with picture in picture, 383,000 viewers. So, 79,000 people 
said, no, wait, 72, 82, oh, 89,000 people. 89,000 people, as soon as they heard no punk, said no moss. Right at the top of the program, you are you, is somebody delusional enough to think that that was not the causation and the effect of that announcement? Before we go too much further, do you think, if nothing changed, if Punk was going to get fired no matter what, is there a different way Tony could have handled the beginning of this show maybe to not turn people off right away if that is one of the things? I think the only, the only thing we talked about this on the clips on YouTube, we put it out on the podcast feed. If he hadn't said, I was fearing, I was scared for my life. That was so over the top and so ridiculous. I think a lot of people collectively blew snot at the same time. And it was so unbelievable. And only a, a, a person who really wants to believe anything Tony Khan says would believe that. And it sounded so absurd that... and. And as people have mentioned, he was so he was so scared for his life that after the guy went out and worked his match and did as he was supposed to do and came back and posed for pictures and then took a shower and then got dressed and then asked if he should leave, and they said, yeah, probably go ahead. He was still shaking. It, so I think that's that's a thing. If if again, if Tony had somebody to do his announcements for him instead of that face and those bug eyes and that wimpy voice and the fact that he has to read everything off a teleprompter before he goes on tangents, if there was somebody that the, the fans could look up to, not because he's their friendly wrestling promoter that employs all their favorites, but because they respect that person in the wrestling business, and if that person said, for unprofessional conduct in getting in an unprovoked fight or whatever the fuck, maybe. But Tony out there with that look, I and mean, I was scared. I've never been, I've been going to wrestling for, I've never been scared for my life. It just. But I guess that's, the, that's my point. If he had come out there and just said, fans, I have a big announcement. I'm very sorry to say, but we have not been able to work with CM Punk and we had to let him go. However. We have an amazing episode tonight, and we hope you give it a shot. We have some big matches, some great wrestlers. Here's Collision. Something upbeat and, like, just into it. Do you think the tone set the tone? It, well, still a lot of people would have tuned out by the end of this program because it was a shits, but maybe they would have given them an extra 15 minutes. I don't know. Well, speaking of an extra 15 minutes, quarter 3, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m., the Dark Order backstage promo Ricky Starks' backstage promo, and the beginning of Commander and Nick Wayne versus Aussie Open. Boy. 327,000 viewers. And that's a gift, that they only lost 56,000 more on that was a fucking gift. So now we're down yeah, 145,000 people from the start. Quarter 4, 8.45 to 9 p.m., the finish of the aforementioned tag team match. Nick Wayne and Darby Allen and Christian Cage's live promo. Claudio Castagnoli and Eddie Kingston backstage promos. An ad break, followed by Ruby Soho's backstage promo. Well, how about a test pattern? They throw one of those in too? 358,000 viewers. 
And that's a gift that they gained some. They got 31000 back. And I don't know why. Well, that brings us to the big 9 o'clock hour. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen then. 9 to 9, 15 p.m., quarter 5. Dennis Rodman, Jeff Jarrett, Sanjay Dutt, Jay Lethal, Billy Gunn, Karen Jarrett, and the Acclaims live promo and confrontation and angle. The Shane Taylor Samoa Joe backstage package, or promo and backstage package. Uh, backstage promo and package. Or backstage package. Also, Britt Baker and Hikaru Shida and Chris Statlander versus the Outcasts. 391,000 viewers. Okay, that... One would have to think at the top of the 9 o'clock hour, the people who hadn't heard, they're tuning in, thinking they're going to see the rest of their normal wrestling program. Why would that gain another 33,000? Maybe you gave it a minute to see what was going to happen with Dennis Rodman. Again... And Dennis Rodman, I guess. And Dennis Rodman. And then you see what he did and who he did it with. The people in Chicago weren't even really happy about Dennis Rodman. And he's... He's their their boy there, right? He was on their team. That's right. The world champion Chicago Bulls, but let's see what the viewers at home thought of him. Quarter six, 9.15 to 9.30 p.m. The continuation of Baker, Sheeta, and Statlander versus the Outcasts with Picture in Picture. Adam Cole's backstage promo. An ad break. Statlander, Soraya, and Soho backstage angle and Powerhouse Hobbs versus GPA Jesus, with the post-match with Miro, 314,000 viewers. Ouch! Okay, apparently, in that single swell foop, they lost what they had gained the two previous quarters and then some. This is the lowest point of the show. We're now down 158,000 people from the start. So apparently Rodman made an impression. Quarter 7, 9.30 to 9.45 p.m., an ad break, an Orange Cassidy backstage promo, and the beginning of Dax Harwood versus Jay White with picture-in-picture, 276,000 viewers. Oh, good Lord. And, hey, you know, that's a shame, because poor old Dax and Jay, they had a good match, but... Not only do people see pockets pop up on the screen, but then they realize there's one match left and Punk's gone and yeah. And you've been tra- and you've been trained to know what it means if Dax has a so- uh, has a singles match. He's going to lose. He's going to lose. And finally, and I'm not even going to give you the uh 2 minute overrun and I'd like to know if this gets counted into the average actually. But quarter 8 with a 2 minute overrun, 9:45 to 10 p.m. Continuation of Dax Harwood versus Jay White with Picture in Picture, 244,000 viewers with 101,000 in the key demo, which I think is the lowest key demo number I have seen. I haven't gone through all the Rampage data for a couple of years, but I don't know if I've ever seen an AEW show with that low a number. I'm trying to do this math. Hold on. They lost somewhere around 45% of the audience from start to finish. That's a new record. And they lost more than 50%. I'm going to say they lost from 234,000 to 101,000. That's uh, that's a loss of 50-something, high 50s percent of the key demo. 
wow. Well, there you go. Um, the people, the the people that wanted to see punk and wanted to see wrestling started watching on Saturday nights. They were starting with a handicap, being the off night and against whatever, but they would they would do a couple hundred thousand fewer viewers, but they would keep them all from start to finish for the most part. And on Wednesdays, AEW Dynamite would start big and then they'd eventually drop off to almost meet collision and lose 20 or 25%, but no program has ever lost 50% of its viewers. And you can tell that the audience that they had built, whatever it was for the past couple of months on Saturday night, said, well, fuck this whole goddamn thing. You got to wonder how much longer Saturday night will continue. Again, this was a week where you're against a WWE pay-per-view. There's other competition on TV. The gas station's open, I know. But people wanted to hear well, what was no, going to be said we, about we, we established the first time the WWE pay-per-view hurts. I don't... Football, fuck it. If they'd rather watch football, then you need to do a better show for the most part. But a WWE pay-per-view, that's understandable and entirely believable that it would take away a predominant part of your audience. But the ones that were left... That weren't watching. So did they just say, fuck it? I don't want to watch SummerSlam, but I'd rather go to bed than watch this. That's the problem. Well, that was the problem. What was... did Rampage do Friday night? Hold on. I'll tell you right now. Give me a second. Did Rampage beat Collision? What day was Friday? That was... It was Friday. The no, what day, day before Saturday. What day of the week was Friday? It was, what day of the week was Friday? It was Friday. <sighs> All right. I just, I'm answering the question. Okay, you're, asking. you're answering the question. Rampage on Friday, TNT, 10 p.m., September 1st. That's what I was looking for. 372,000 viewers. Jesus Christ. Well, actually, yeah, 372. Here are the quarter breakdowns 418, 359, 365, 346, starting at 159 of the key demo, ending at 136. Okay, so they lost say, 50, 54, 64, 70. They lost about 20% of their audience, like most of the AEW shows do, but they didn't lose 50%. And they had, hold on, on Collision, there were one, two, three, four quarters on Collision that were lower than anything on Rampage. Let that sink in. Well, that was AEW's collision ratings or AEW's collision. I don't know what the hell. Listen, it's a lot of stuff going on. We're going to jump in the time machine. We'll be back with more classic stuff, but in the future. He's tapped out, folks. Hold on. Do I even have this on? That's not the time machine. That was just uh, something else. But that sounded like a fucking buffalo fart. What's this? Let's see. There we go. Well, we'll be uh, back shortly. We're going to go to the future to talk about the past right after this. Oh, it's still going. What the hell? Well, we are in the future, ladies and gentlemen. Um, wait a minute. Hold on. I think I've got the vertigo. That... 
that spellbinding rhythm has has messed with my equilibrium and i'm i'm waving from side to side i can swear that i could hear blue <sighs> what have you done to me well obviously i've taken you here to the future past collisions ratings past oh, everything else God. and we are here <laughs> no we're not day. past everything because now we got a bunch more shit to talk about ladies and gentlemen I'm telling you, we were in the future now from where we were just moments ago, as far as you know. And as a result, we've got future knowledge. And as a result, we're going to be talking about more stupid things going on that have, it, it, it doesn't go a day. Brian, I wish there was some way that we could just, we could just bet on stupid. You know, like you go to Las Vegas, you bet it all on black. If there was a way we could bet it all on stupid. Just some way or another. I'm not talking about a score. I'm not talking about a, a game specifically. I'm just talking about bet on stupid. Something stupid is going to happen tomorrow, and you'd, you'd be a winner every time. You could retire. D do you think that our friends at DraftKings take bets on stupid? Well, that may be a bit too vague and large. They may lose uh, all their DraftKings money if they did something like that, but there are plenty of stupid people and stupid things you could bet on. Well, so you're saying it's overly broad just to put your money on stupid, but you could always bet on stupid people. Like we could bet that the collision ratings are going to plummet like a certain stock that we know about now in the future. Or we could, we could bet that that maybe Tony Khan, the man who's never fired anybody, is now going to turn into Ole Anderson and fire half of his roster. We could bet on that, but. but you you said they might lose all the DraftKings money. Do you mean that there are actual kings ponying up the money, the financing, the cash, the bread to finance this whole DraftKings sportsbook uh, operation that's going on here that's an official sports betting partner of the NFL? So you, you know they're legitimate. You mean the, 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 the actual DraftKings? What are they the kings of? The draft. Are they the kings of particularly a... A country or a, the draft. a people, the draft. Yeah, the sports draft, not the uh, draft that has been Not gone the military since. draft. That's, that's right. That's you right. know, you're not going to be sent over there, over there to the draft kings. That's not what's going to, they're not going to pluck you out of, at random out of your civilian life and, and put you into the servitude of the uh, armed forces over at draft kings. That's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying, I, I think. I so even I'm can, confused. Can we bet that one of these NFL teams, maybe the Jacksonville Jaguars, will do something stupid? Do they take bets on on stupid on the football teams, or do they just the winning and losing and and all that type see, of thing? It would be interesting if you could bet on stupid versus old stupid. Like if you were able to say, I think the Jacksonville Jaguars will do something stupid, but it won't be nearly as stupid as the things they did last season. Well, no, actually, I'm kind of thinking that that it's going in the, in the other direction there, Brian, because it what? seems like the well, it seems like that the stupider people are doing stupider things now than 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 back in the used to days, back in the member. Remember, remember that back in the member days. I think that stupid remember, is remember. Go go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that stupid is expanding, and I think that the capacity for stupid is increasing so i think that the <laughs> the level basically they've raised the bar on stupid now what was what was thought of as stupid 
10 or 15, 20 years ago may almost have graduated into smart just because stupid has gone so much further. Well, whether someone is smart or stupid, they can try to win some money with DraftKings. That's what we were going to talk about, wasn't it? Well, let me ask you this. Please. You can do math in your head better than I can, but I'm just trying to eyeball this thing. Right now, new customers at DraftKings can get $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on any NFL game. $200 in bonus bets instantly if you bet five bucks. Now, that means that's 40 times that amount of money that you're betting that you're getting from these fine kings of draft. So does that mean like if you bet $500,000, they'd give you $4 billion? If you bet five, uh, what are you betting on exactly? An NFL game. What are you saying? You're just betting on the winner? Well, no, I'm trying to get their $200 that they're going to give me some kind of way here. We get $200 in bonus bets instantly. Just, that's like that. When you bet just five bucks on any NFL game at DraftKings, if you're a new customer, and for the people who do that kind of thing, that's the kind of thing those people do where they place all these bets. I'm just wondering if you increase that. Can we extrapolate? Instead of betting $5, if I was to bet $500,000 and win, would they give me 40 times the amount of money, like the 200 and the five, so I'd get $40 million? See, this is a mathematical problem. It is, but you don't have to worry You're about not those solving kind of problems. I'm not solving. Listen, if you want to bet on the game or the player or the moves or the things that they do on the field, we know a place you can go. And if you're a new user, you get a great deal. Where everybody knows your name. Well, some people may know your name. Well, or we, we encourage, instead of going out to the casino or going to your local bookie in some back alley somewhere, and hey, if you don't pay these people in the back alleys, they'll break your legs. The, the, the DraftKings doesn't resort to stuff like that. They just take naked pictures of your wife and sell them on the internet if you no, don't pay up. That's not involved They're in not any of this. They're not going to break any bones or anything. They're not going to take pictures of your wife. Anyway, so right now, and here's the thing, that's just for new customers, all the stuff we just said. Go back and listen to it again. But you can get everybody can get hooked up with game day greatness because all customers can take advantage of two new offers every single game day this September. If they're playing a game on that day in September, well, that would make it a game day, and there's two new offers. But you got to check the app to see what what the hell those things are because they're going to change all the time without notice. You you need to jump in on these things, all of them. Have you ever opened an app? I don't know how to find one, and I don't know (laughs) if I need it. Do I need a key to open the app, or do I need... On the smartphone. No, I don't have a fucking smartphone. You know that. But Stacy's never said, honey, I'm in the next room. Can you please click something on the phone? I need to see something. No, I refuse to touch her phone. Why? Because because there's all kinds of fucking hidden buttons and controls where you could call people or you could mute it or you goddamn the screen pops up different shit. I don't want to touch that thing. You won't even touch it. It's goddamn it's it could I, I could somehow send something incriminating to somebody. When Hotchkiss uses the official bat phone, he doesn't turn it around and show you what he's pressing or anything that he's doing. No, I'd fire him if he tried to do that. I don't want to look at that shit. I'm not going to be doing it. I ain't got time for this shit. But I'll tell you what, if you know about the apps, then what you do is you go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app 
and open it or unlock it or goddamn pry it open. I don't care what you got to do. Take a fucking hatchet to it. But get into it and sign up using the code JCE. And once you do that, then once again, new customers, $200 in bonus bets when you bet $5. And there's all customers get new offers of some description that you have to open this app to figure out. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Just use the code JCE, for heaven's sake. JCE, did I mention that enough? JCE, that's the code. All right, and apparently some people, they have a problem with gambling. Now, this is not something you want to do every day, from what I understand. Yet gambling is not a thing that you can... Do it every day and, and practice until you get good at it. It's it's kind of a game of chance, I believe they call it. So just in, just in case of that, we have some information here. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER and they'll find you a gambler. Or visit no. www.1800gambler.net. Yes. Is that a website or a phone number? That's a phone <laughs> In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY. There's hope for you in NY. Or text HOPE-NY, which is 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling if you call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. CCPG, what the fuck does that stand for? Please play responsibly. In everything you do, and honestly and legally, especially basketball, don't cheat at basketball. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, we invite you, I guess. I'm not sure what this their behalf is. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction, but as everyone knows, everything is void in Ontario. A black hole with gravity that sucks in ccdkng.co slash football. I do not understand those words. For eligibility, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days at uh, at issuance. So, goddammit, it, you better cash them in or you're going to lose them. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. In many cases. Good day. Well, good day, and that was DraftKings. Check them out. They support us, so they deserve you supporting them. And we'll all support each other, because after all, what's an athlete without his supporters? Well, Jim, speaking of athletes, we have some AEW news that we should get to here. Word has come out overnight. (laughs) In a surprise move, Tony Khan and AEW have announced that Ace Steel has been promoted. Vice (laughs) President of Talent Development, they're giving him a facility in Florida to train people. I'm shocked by this, but what a interesting move. Ah, well, in a in a bizarro world where actually AEW is the bizarro world. So in the bizarro world of AEW where everything is normal, that would probably be what is happening. Uh, but in actual fact, what they did was they fired him. And apparently, the the, again, we all know the history of this, so we'll try not to go into granular detail. But after the brawl for all last September was settled to everyone's tenuous grasp on 
satisfaction where that it was agreed that Punk would come back and he'd be going over on Saturday night and the little fucking cowards would be still over on Wednesday night so that nobody got scared. Ace Steel was supposed to be coming back to Saturday nights to Collision to be Punk's producer as he was before he was Punk's producer. Guys had 25, maybe 30 years experience in the wrestling business. So what the hell, right? Why not make him a producer since he's been around the business longer than most of those fuckers have been alive. And then when Punk was about to come back and they were about to announce the Saturday night show, we all remember the brouhaha when after they had gone through all the trouble of negotiating another deal with A. Steel to put him in the, in the back of the producer's position, to give him back pay for the time that he was unceremoniously fired beforehand for defending his friend and wife, and everything was fine and everything was going to be swell and this was going to be the deal and that's what Punk was told and that's what Steele was told, then you'll recall that at the last minute, a Steel's contract was screwed up. Wonder who was in charge of AEW Legal would be in charge of executing these contracts and making sure that they matched the deals that Tony Khan had made with these people. I wonder what in the world, because AEW Legal's a crack staff. We know that. A number of their staff is cracked. Well, also HR would be involved because for an employee to come back or an employee to be hired, you would need human resources involved. Yes. So why couldn't all this be translated properly that they were about to announce the big debut of Collision and suddenly they're trying to fuck a steal around on his deal and Punk says, well, I ain't going. And they have to get past all of that and get everything settled again. And then as soon as they make the deal, still. And still, they were basically ended up with, they gave A. Steele his job back, but said, you can't do it. We'll pay you for it, and that's your job, but you have to work from home because people don't want you around because of all of the backstage brawls that you've been involved in in your 30 years in wrestling, all one of them. They were scared of him, so they were paying him to work from home. You can't be a wrestling producer from home. And again, they were lied to and misrepresented to, and still Punk finally agreed to come back and try to save that fucking sinking ship. And Steele agreed to fucking work from home. <sighs> you know, we and we talked about for four fucking years. Tony wouldn't fire anybody. The the he had wrestlers without all of their proper god-given appendages he wouldn't fire him he had the worst wrestlers of the indie scene that couldn't even be shown on television he'd pay him for two three years he wouldn't fire him now in a space of a week he not only fires the biggest star he's had the whole time he's been running this fucking joint but how do you fire a steel over this by the way a steel's now been fired twice by aew he's the iron yes. sheik of aew and, and again, they just gave him his job back. They just said, okay, you're back. We're paying you. You work for the company. You're going to do something. You can't come to TV, but you're going to do something. This deal has been made. 
And Ace Steel wasn't in London. Ace Steel didn't front face like Jungle Boy. Ace Steel wasn't even there. It was Punk. Punk front face locked him. But all of us, as soon as now they feel brave enough that as soon as they get rid of the evil CM Punk, this guy who had put up with everything else that they'd fucking done to him and was fucking making him sit at home and not do the what he was supposed to do and the time that he was maligned publicly because he was helping his wife and his friend. And then as soon as they feel like, okay, Punk's gone, now we can just fire him again. He didn't do anything new. If you gave him his job back a little while ago, well, he ain't done anything else. He wasn't even there. They're just liars and fucking backstabbers. Not Tony, the people really running his company. The fucking legal team and, and her buckaroos. I'm sorry, I'm just cranky today. No, I mean, that's the big thing. If Ace Steel was rehired and hasn't done anything, he hasn't interacted with anyone, he hasn't been there to cause trouble, whatever job they're asking him to do, I'm assuming, I'm assuming he's doing it, that it's not just a, we'll pay you to stay home kind of thing. What did he do to be fired? And, you know, it's now being reported, it's public, and we had heard this, at least I had, beforehand, that Tony Khan was about to open a wrestling school or a maybe not a school, but just a place to train people. Training facility. With Ace Steel. That Ace Steel was either going <laughs> to run it or be the top trainer or something. And then all of a sudden that all changed. So. Because he spent quite a bit of time around Harley Race's wrestling school. And he spent quite a bit of time around various different training programs. So that would have been, a, once again, something they need over there. But here's the problem. You can imagine that the buckaroos and their ilk don't want somebody training people how to be professional wrestlers because it wouldn't involve gymnastics and trampolines. So there's, oh God, last thing we want is another bunch of guys that can outwork us. So, you know, I'm sure they were highly against that to begin with, just from a uh, philosophical standpoint. But again, you know, the only people he has ever fired are his biggest star and his biggest star's producer twice. One time for fucking retaliating and coming in and making a save, and the second time for sitting at home minding his own business. You know, he fired Jimmy Havoc and well-deserved. Oh, I forgot. Well, I no, forgot. no, but well-deserved. How come he didn't fire Excalibur for choking out Jimmy Havoc in front of him? That happened in front of Tony Khan. He wasn't afraid of his life then. I forgot. He he's already seen a choke out. Well, he was probably too drunk at night. He doesn't remember it though. Well, he likes to hang out with the boys, you know. He's one of them. He considers himself one of them. But anyway, so that it's a sad state of affairs now that again, this guy is not even hardly two weeks removed from running the Biggest attended wrestling event of all time, and the only thing people are talking about about his company is who he's firing. And as, as a matter of fact, more people are talking about who he's firing than watching his television program. We talked earlier about the collision ratings plummeting off the edge of a cliff. Our YouTube clip talking about 
Tony firing CM Punk did more downloads than viewers of the show where Tony announced it to begin with. Because everybody's talking about, and by the way, I got the numbers as of, as of yesterday afternoon, 412,000 to 345,000. But the point is, everybody's talking about who AEW is Just fired, on YouTube. But, just on YouTube. And, and that's just on YouTube, by the way. But nobody's actually going to AEW to fucking hear it from the source. They're, everybody's talking about them rather than watching them, for fuck's sake. We beat Rampage, too, by the way. But that's part of the problem. The drama around AEW is more interesting than everything they have on TV. And it has been for at least a couple of years. Nothing they put on that show is as intriguing as their self-induced drama. WWE has plenty of drama on their own. And then the shows happen, and it kind of, after a while, things go away. AEW, it's one thing after another after another. There will be more. We'll see who the next bad guy is. But that's the thing. They let the drama overwhelm everything else that's happening there. And then they complain about everyone talking about it. Fucking you guys get off Twitter and work on your locker room. You know what, though? I've just realized this is all a carefully orchestrated plan. TNT drama. They're trying to, they're trying to go along with the fucking uh, branding of the network. I guess it's all so. been a it's all been a massive web of lies and work. And now everybody's going to come out and take a bow on stage. Punk will be in the lead. Well, we will uh, see what happens there. But speaking of a bow on stage, Jim, of course we did go in the time machine and travel to the future here as we are recording. And according to uh let me update this. Right now, <laughs> the podcast one stock listed as PODC Courtside Group Incorporated. This was the stock, ladies and gentlemen, you may remember this, that Colin Thompson of Cast Media on an email to myself with the chief executives of Podcast One said we would get for the money that Colin misappropriated of ours, at least the amount he was admitting to in that email we would have gotten a third of that in Podcast One pre-IPO stock, stock with a valuation before it goes public, and then we would have to hold that stock for two years. Now, it's an important note here. I've recently learned that other people who have received some of this stock, for instance, employees of Podcast One, or perhaps Colin Thompson, they're allowed to unload the stock in six months. Ah. You got to wonder if in six months, no matter where this is, is going to be a rush to sell that thing. And then every podcast that has to hold it for another year and a half is going to be fucked. But the stock we were promised pre-IPO podcast one went public today, this morning, the team from podcast one and what a motley crew this is. Luckily there are visuals, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, good Lord. Yes. Oh, the, the one guy looked like fucking Lumpy Rutherford's fucking older uncle. <laughs> his fucking round face and his fake teeth because they were so bright white. They were, he was doing like the star thing whenever, whenever he had his forced smile on his face. Otherwise, he looked uncomfortable like he had a 
outbreak of shingles in between his buttocks. <laughs> I believe you're speaking of Kit Gray from Podcast One. He was next to Rob Ellen, who uh, certainly didn't dress up for the occasion. I guess he wants people to think he's Mr. Rock and Roll. He, he, he came right in from Hollywood. But the stock went public this morning, Jim. It opened at $8 a share. That is <laughs> what they were thinking for a while. They were saying they hoped to open between $12 a share and $8 a share. Again, that's what they thought. I guess 8 is in between 8 and 12, ain't it? I guess so. And if we had received any of the stock, if we had accepted this deal, this bad deal, which also we would have been locked into working with these people who we don't want to work with, we would have received this. It would have opened at 8. And right now, as we are recording, we would have $4.44 a share. It is down 44.5% already on the day. Is it, what time do they open up there? 9.30, 10 o'clock? 9.30 is the stock market. Okay, so four hours, a little over four hours, and it's already worth half of what it was to begin with. And so this, this six months thing, you know, good luck. This is going to be one of those deals where, like some South American country, you have to carry the currency in a wheelbarrow. You're going to have to have so many thousands of shares to get any folding money out of it in six months that you'll have to wheelbarrow the thing up to the window. And again, 80% of Podcast One stock will be owned by the parent company, Live One. It's kind of like WWE and Vince in a way, but they'll have 80% of the stock. The other 20% is what's being sold or what's being given to either investors or employees or, of course, podcasters were offered. They didn't, they didn't counterfeit money. They didn't print actual currency that somebody may have been able to pass off for real they just printed their own stock and it's bad paper and they paid people with bad paper that started at a value that they gave it based on nothing and now is worth half of that in four hours is what i'm saying what i is what i'm hearing as a layman as a yeah. small town bird lawyer that certainly seems like it. And again, if you receive this stock, whether it's six months or two years, you couldn't sell it right away. So you're just watching whatever valuation you thought you had slip away. Now, look, it may rise up again a little bit because it's gone down so fast. I could see some people jumping in and trying to buy a lot, but didn't no, they, didn't no they serious think? institution's going to buy a $4.44 share of Podcast One, I'll tell you that. Didn't they halt trading because it was dropping so fast at one point? They halted trading four times so far today. <laughs> Uh, but we're not exactly sure what caused the halt. Uh, CNBC has not been covering this stock for some reason uh, on the day. Uh, there's other things happening right now. Right now, they're talking about crypto. So that shows you where their priorities are here in the two o'clock hour. But $4.44 today. And a hey, hey, good job, Rob Ellen. My buddy, my pal that emailed me can't even fucking write English. I wonder if he's a graduate from a major university. Did he go to. Penn State, or did he go to the state pen, I wonder? Hey, Rob, by the way, fuck you. Fuck you, Rob. And, and you know, and here's the thing. We, again, I personally, me, Jim Cornette speaking in front of hundreds of thousands of people. I'm not even talking to Colin Thompson now. He's, he's got one of those padlocks on his Twitter account now, and he's, he's gone somewhere. He wasn't up on stage with the rest of these cretins and reprobates. It looked like a goddamn hostage situation they were hostages of the sandinistas that were being traded for political prisoners if they played their cards right that's what they all looked. one woman looked like she was breaking into tears up there in the shot that i saw but nevertheless rob i have said everything about all of you people except the only thing i've not said 
is that your mother sucked dicks for dimes and dive bars and your father sold government secrets to the Nazis. Everything else I've said. And I know that Colin is on the run and either stole the money and lost it or he stole the money and kept it, but he doesn't want to pay for a lawyer because he hasn't fucking had his shyster attorney contact me about my comments. But Rob, you're up there with a goddamn hammer at the stock exchange. Even though you dressed like an explosion in a Salvation Army drop box, it would seem that since you're the CEO of Live One or Podcast One or whatever shyster scam you're operating, both you'd be able to afford an attorney. So if I've said something that's not true or that you don't like and you feel like you can do something about it, if you're feeling froggy, asshole, fucking hop. But otherwise, I'm continuing to say, fuck you, you fucking crook in front of hundreds of thousands of people, and you ain't doing anything about it. And apparently, you're scared to bring attention to this, but it's too late now anyway, Rob, because your fucking scam, the the shit's already worth half of what it was four hours ago. People are catching on. I'm sure you've figured out some way you're going to make money off of this, fucking everybody else. You and Colin, your good, close, personal friend or whatever. But you can't do God dead. Please have a lawyer call me. I will print his fucking letter on my website like I did the last time. And I will fucking read it on the air to millions of people. And I will also tell your lawyer to shove his gavel up his fucking ass. Fuck you. Fuck all you fucking Wall Street crooks. Yeah, no, fuck Rob Ellen. He's a complete piece of shit for his involvement in this. And what gets me is they're lying about stuff now because we were told Colin Thompson's going along with this deal. Theo Vaughn just said he was told Colin Thompson was going along with this deal. They said we thought he did a wonderful job to Theo. The press statement they put out was all about, I mean, Colin had his quotes in there. The official live one press release. His quotes were in there. He was going to be a part of this. We look forward to what we're going to keep doing. There was nothing going to stop. He was going to land there, get a bunch of stock he could sell after six months, more than likely, I think. And every show they got screwed to get screwed a second time. A second time. And now they're saying that Colin had no guaranteed job. Obviously, Colin wasn't there at the stock exchange. None of this has gone the way they thought it was going to go. They thought we were all going to be a bunch of sap podcasters desperate for any money we can get they all thought we were going to be a bunch of idiots and let these people fucking steal from us a second time all you have to do is go look at this rob ellen guy and go look at this kit gray guy and boy there are videos and every photo of colin thompson with his fucking ridiculous hairdo hey 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 kit gray looked like he was looking for that little fucking laser beam sight on a fucking scope like he was up there about to be fucking shot on sight he was nervous he was shaking like a dog shitting peach seeds up there while the other stooge was talking would you want to ever work with or for any of these people we learned our lesson we're not gonna you know the who we won't get fooled again, or George Bush, you fool me once, can't get, won't get fooled again. We're not going to get fucked a second time by the same person. <laughs> you're the fucky. We're the fuckers. Yeah. But I hope you're enjoying your stock. 
Hope you're Who's enjoying your morning. Now? Hope yeah. you're enjoying your morning with your stock. I understand things aren't going very well. Oh, that class that class action suit from his former employees. That is another thing happening right now. And I can tell you there are a lot of media members circling this story. And we're telling everyone the same thing. You'll listen to what we've said on the air. We have documentation to back everything up. Anything you guys need, we are providing information of everything we're saying to document it and back it up. We challenge Colin Thompson and Rob Ellen to do the same. Because eventually it's all going to come out in discovery. And eventually you two are going to turn on each other and one of you is going to point the finger at the other one. And I'm going to be there to laugh at both of you. I'll tell you what, that probably from the looks of him won't be the first time that Colin gets fingered. Probably not. But that is the update. Oh, actually, we have some audio. Look at this. Let's give people an example. Do you want to hear what Rob Ellen sounds like? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Here is an interview from the Schwab Network. This is from the floor of NASDAQ, so uh, let's go to this. Joining me right now from the NASDAQ, Rob Elon, chairman and CEO of Live One. All right. Good to see you, Rob. Big day. You guys rang the bell there at the NASDAQ. And this is um, the first company to complete a spin-off, direct listing, and a partial dividend. There's a lot going on here. Explain what's happening. There's a lot going on here. <laughs> There's a lot going they on here. You cannot figure out a way to encapsulate and, and explain this deal. <laughs> Even she doesn't know how to fucking explain this. She's the fucking on-air anchor of the fucking program. Let's go to this. Explain, Rob. Here today. Now, this is, this is the first of its kind. Um, and it took a little longer than we expected, but it's exciting uh, to have the only podcast network trading on a national exchange. And as you just saw, we just raised our guidance substantially um, to 47 to 52 million and four to five million dollars of EBITDA. So a massive jump from last year's 34 million in losing money. Right. It's a really exciting time for the company. And I think this is that is a massive jump, isn't it? He's just fucking blurting out numbers and, and loud noises. How does last how year we it? lost all this money, but this year we're doing a lot better. We want you to believe in us this year. Forget about last year. Oh my God! It's a time for the podcast industry to be rolled up. I think it's an opportunity for us to roll up multiple companies in this space, as well as to pick off many of the podcasters who are. Stop right there. Listen to the uh, words what are, he's what using. Are, what are we? What are we? Fucking uh, the the ducks at the shooting gallery at the county fair. He's going to pick us off, us podcasters. And roll everybody up? Roll everyone up, pick them off. This is the problem. You have a mook who had nothing to do with podcasting until his shitty company bought Podcast One, which was a shitty company. So now all of a sudden, because he owns Podcast One and he's the CEO of the parent company, he gets to come out here and pretend like he knows anything about podcasting. Of course he thinks it's time to roll everything up. He wants to roll it up under his stock. He wants to be the Vince McMahon of podcasting and tell everybody what to say and how to do it. Vince McMahon was never a frump, Rob. <laughs> Let's go back to Rob. For a home that can really provide them that full 360 play. So great revenue jump. Um, business is terrific. We did 10.6 <laughs> million for the quarter. Um, our 10.6 million in what? In revenue? In, in what, for what, and at what cost? Largest number in the history of the company. 
And with this now, and by doing this separation and spinoff, I mean, for Live One still owns about 80% of Podcast One, but you're still working on more consolidation. What are you thinking in a year or two or three? What might we be saying? Now, let me just stop it right here to say an overall general principle I have. And Jim and I are in a very fortunate position. Independence is the way to go. We all need help at various points, but a podcaster needs independence. You need to get your own hosting. If you need production support, get production support. If you need advertising support, get advertising support. But you don't need a record label. You don't need a television network. All they can do, the only thing they can do is just dump money into your show. And then they're going to want to own a piece of everything. And then they're going to want a bigger cut of everything. 360 deals. They want to be involved in everything. 360 deal means merch. That means YouTube. That means touring. That means the podcast. This MOOC saw what other people were doing in the music industry 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and not realizing the market conditions of what is the podcasting industry is attempting to do it now. Let's go back to this. Well, hold on a second. Before yeah. we go back to anything, I'll break it down even simpler than that. What the fuck? The whole idea of podcasting is like the whole idea of YouTube. It's that the internet has uh, given us the magical ability to be our own TV network or to be our own record label or to be our own fucking radio station and do our own thing our own way, whatever that thing is. And I'm not, I'm talking about the Royal Hour now. Everybody out here that does a podcast or gets on YouTube or puts something on fucking Facebook or whatever all is, pictures of cats, I don't give a shit, whatever. That's the fucking idea, isn't it? So now they want to do a deal where now everybody's, independent doing their own thing things suddenly they all work for this fucking asshole and they do the shows the way he wants them to the and say the things that he wants or doesn't want or has if you're a comedian a stand-up comic he's got part of your touring and your merchandise or if you're us he's not only he would have strong-armed us into having uh, uh, involvement in our YouTube channel, which is nobody else does, is completely separate from the podcast, but we own everything. It, he's trying to take over everybody's shit that are, that are doing this specifically because, yes, there has been some goddamn dumbing down of entertainment. You used to, like I've said before, you used to have to know how to fucking write be able to write for a goddamn news outlet, a magazine or a newspaper. Now the internet used to have to be able to sing, be able to record your music and get it out where anybody could see it or hear it. There's that, there's that too. But also this is the whole idea. It's do it your fucking self, right? That's right. That's exactly right. And again, I'm not saying there's not room for companies because there absolutely is advertising support, production help, maybe marketing help, advertising help. But it shouldn't be the old model of some big bloated company that's going to have all these divisions that they're going to stock with people they like, may not be people you like, and then they're going to take more and more money off the top. That's not the way it's supposed to go. The way podcasting is and the way the entertainment business is, everything's going the other way. You know what? This is kind of the most legitimate now that we think about this. 
this is kind of the most legitimate way to determine whether you're any fucking good or not. Because back in the old days when there were three networks, you could put something on fucking Tuesday night at 8 o'clock on CBS and it would get 35 million viewers by default, whether it was goddamn any good or not. But now people can see and hear every fucking thing. So if a podcast is good or if a TV show is good, people will watch it, but they don't have to. So it's the kind of the ultimate stand or fall on your merits. If you find an audience, then that means that for the kind of people that like that kind of thing, that's the kind of thing those people like. And if you don't, well, you know, it, it you know, Mama says it bees that way sometimes, right? That's right. Well, let's go back to some more audio from Mr. Elegance, who thinks he's somehow in a position where he should be the leader of the podcast business. Let's go to this. Yeah, great question. So what I publicly said is I believe the TAM of the industry right now is growing so fast, right? It's about 1.3 or 1.4 billion. It's going to 7 to 10 billion between now and, and uh, 2030. Um, what we've said is, is that right now we have the biggest pipeline of podcasts in the history of the company. There's over 100 in that pipeline. Number two is we said there are 10 acquisitions that we are actively looking at that are potential candidates, right? Just like Fantasy Guru and just like Cass. We're looking at potential candidates. That's the funniest yeah. fucking way to put it. We have a bunch of shows in mind that we're going to go and make a bullshit deal to. We're looking at them right now. And, and yeah, Cass, a, a potential deal. Actually, what, three or four months after they sent out emails and, and paperwork to the affected shows from Cass saying that it was a deal that they were going to be doing. And, and now they're backing up on all of their verbiage. We were told by Colin it was a straight-up sale. The press release announced a sale of certain assets, and that's in quotes, certain assets. Turned out they were going to get rid of their whole team, and only Colin was going to go there. And then all of a sudden it became you have to go work for them. So there's a lot of things we need to track down the timeline of, but let's go back to uh, Mr. Podcast. That have great assets, the distressed. Um, they're fighting through Distressed. a very difficult bank. See, that's the problem. How many other Colin Thompsons are there out there who, because there was a bubble and because people don't know anything about podcasts and try to pour themselves into it, they get involved with these people and they're building unsustainable networks unless you're doing it the right way, which is here's a revenue stream. Here's the share that goes to the podcaster. Here's our share. Here are all the other shares we get from other shows. The business has to work on that. Well, besides that, he said the, the distressed asset, the, the, re, the reason, the cause of our distress was the guy that's then trying to sell all those shows over here to this fucking crook. So he distressed us on purpose so that we'd want to allegedly want to fucking go to any safe harbor. And then this guy was waiting with the fucking ferry boat. Key market, they're fighting through a very difficult small cap market, and this could be that opportunity to really roll it up. And our our team is so experienced. You know, they're a team that built, you know, helped build Westwood One. Uh, they Westwood One fucking sucks, by the way. Anyone who knows anything about radio syndication, Westwood One fucking sucks. But anyway, back to this. Come out of the iHearts of the world, Sue McNamara, rent sales for Howard Stern and Mel Carmazin. This is a world-class team that has that experience that really, you know, is going to be able to provide stability for those smaller companies and give them yeah. an outlet to be able to really be rolled up and, and feel comfortable that someone's going to create that value. 
And that's why they have to change everyone's deals. And that's why they're trying to get 60, 40 deals. And that's why they want 360 deals. Cause somehow they got to pay for all this shit. They're trying to fucking sell everyone on. For, I mean, having the only public currency is going to give us a huge advantage. Yeah, and you talk about top artists, there's music, there's entertainment, all kinds of podcasts. You have the audio group and the music group. Um, name names. Tell me a little bit about that. I like when you bring in things that people understand or recognize because you talked about the growth of the company. You talked about some of the numbers. I mean, how many listeners are we talking about? And um, how are you breaking it down for this growth and recognition, too? Yeah, a couple of things. The crossover between our music obviously fits together. Just like the music, I don't know if he means Slacker Radio, the company that lost a $10 million judgment, or almost $10 million to Sound Exchange last year, who, from what I've heard, he's about to spin off as the next stock of uh, of Live One. So I'm well, not wait sure. Wait a minute. How could he spin that off as stock when they said when they lost the judgment that, that they couldn't afford to pay it to begin with? That was only $10 million. I'm not sure. We actually have to find out what. I'll reach out to Sound Exchange, see what we can find out about what's going on with that. But let's go back to the MOOC. And everybody else has enhanced the experience, the music listening and audio by adding podcasting, right? Um, we have this very unique partnership with Elon Musk and Tesla, and we've just added a Tesla. Tesla. It's not Tesla, it's Tesla. <clears throat> I'll put my money on this guy's either from the five towns or Merrick Belmore. But anyway, back to this 125 podcasts into every Tesla car. It's a new revenue stream advertising stream sponsorship stream and so again that's something interesting they can inflate how many subscribers they have i guess because if it's just automatically put into a tesla car whether you subscribe or not like i get a new car it comes with sirius satellite radio i never sign up for it so it'll give me three free months technically i'm a subscriber i guess for those free months but then i never come back now, these people certainly they wouldn't artificially inflate their numbers by nefarious means I would say certainly not. They're a publicly traded company, but it's a questionable thing. Uh, they've been they've it. been nefariously inflating everything else, including their dates for this evening. Why is Elon Musk doing business with these people? But anyway, new way for us to reach our audience inside of Tesla's and talk to them to be able to upsell them and do other things with them. On top of that, our musicians cross over. We now have T Pain with a great podcast with us, and we've done many others. We did with Pitbull, and we see great advantages in that crossover between driving music, driving audio, and driving that content. This guy's so full of shit. He looks like a fucking potato with a potato head. Yeah, and when we look at the uh, big picture here going forward and talk about you're, you're done with the at least part of the spinoff, now what are you hoping to accomplish at least in the near term? Because when you see the What are they the in a chart, parking lot? They are in the stock exchange and there are no cars in these indoor buildings, so I'm not sure, unless this is like outside a hospital, I'm not sure. It really is looking great. Yeah, so I mean, to, to start with, we've also talked about spinning off our Slacker business, right? Which Bingo. the subscription is, is literally just hockey stick growth, very much like Podcast One. Um, and when you look at those numbers, we've grown our subscription from 400,000 when we took Live One public to over 3 million, and we're on our way to 4 million this year. So, really exciting. And How many of those subscribers have this automatically given to them, like for instance, in a Tesla car and have never sought out Slacker? or wanted slacker, because, you know, it's not 2003 or anything. We don't know. Millions and millions of paid subscribers. We're growing about 65, almost 70,000 paid subscribers a month. 
That's a lot. Um, And they're all paying, as you said. I mean, that's another big part of it. What about the advertising business? It's so fragmented. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like there was COVID and then improvement? Where do we stand now on an economy and advertising? I think the overall ad market is is struggling. Uh, this is a, this is a, it's better than it was three months ago, but still struggling. But interesting enough, in pod, part of the problem is in the podcasting, it needs to be on a show by show basis. Bundling a bunch of shows is a bad idea, even if it's the same genre of shows. It has to be a show by show basis. That's why a lot of podcasters should just get their own advertising team that will work specifically with them for their needs. Right, podcasting is actually doing doing very well. And part of the reason it's do, doing so well, because the metrics are so easy to track as a digital experience. And I think, you know, just going back when, you know, in, in my career as I've watched, you know, having those Howard Stearns, having those Adam Carollas, they said, we have an art platform, the Jordan Harbingers. They have such a sphere of influence over over their 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 enthusiastic consumer base, right? Those super fans. That this guy's I such think a that you're douche see uh, continued growth in sponsorship in podcasting, and I think you're going to see very uniquely so many new sponsors have moved into podcasting. Yeah, he's right about that. People who've been using their radio budgets, uh, people who have not been applying their radio budgets to podcasting, are finally starting to loosen up. People have been only using it for digital advertising are starting to look to podcasting. That's the way it should be. But he doesn't really have any function in that. They're just trying to swallow up a bunch of shows. Look, when Vince McMahon started getting wrestlers, everyone felt like this was great. After a while, it was like, man, he, he's got everything. He owns everything. It's all about him. We're fucked. He owns my name. That's what this guy's trying to do right here. I don't know how much longer I could listen to this guy. Any closing thoughts? I was thoughts? about to say, closing thoughts is, what is the closing price of the stock oh. before it closes its doors? Hold on, maybe it went up. It had to have gone up. Uh, it went down. It's now $4.36 a share. <laughs> so it's now down 45, uh, it's still 45.5%, $3.64 down from where it opened at $8. And uh, why would you buy everybody it? Everybody apprised. Why would you buy it? The only reason you buy a stock is if you're hoping to make money with it. So why would you, again, I'm just going based on my personal experience with these people, just in our dealings that we've talked about on the air. I wouldn't want anything to do with this executive team, and I don't want anything to do with this CEO, and I saw how they tried to fuck me and give me this stock, and I saw and have talked to people who have been offered worse deals than we were offered with them. So why would anyone want to do business with these people, and why would anyone want to own this stock? Apparently, nobody does. <laughs> It, it doesn't have too much farther to fall in, unless it's made out of rubber and then it'll bounce so it can fall again. Well, that was the update on Colin Thompson, Cast One, uh, Cast One Live One, Cast Media, Podcast One. Apparently, Cast Media still in operation, haven't filed for bankruptcy. Colin's still billing on whatever shows he still has that he could bill off. Where's that money going? We'll find out. But Jim, we will be right back after this commercial timeout. All right, Jim, we're back. Well, let's go from one dick and Rob Ellen to another. I got a question here. This was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Jason. I once heard a rumor that Jacques Rougeau had his penis tattooed to look like a snake. What? This came from a reliable source. But my first thoughts were that this was clearly made up. If it were true, I feel like podcasts and shoot interviews would mention it every time discussing Rougeau. (laughs) Has Jim ever heard the rumor 
or seen the snake itself. <laughs> All right, hold on, cowboy. No, that is the most. I have never personally viewed or inspected said area. So there's no way for me to say with 100% certainty in a court of law, like I'd be willing to do some other things, that that is not the case, but that is probably one of the more ridiculous things I've ever heard. And yes, I would think at some point somebody would have seen that and we would have been talking about it before now. I, I have a feeling that is, what do they call them, an urban legend. But you have no proof. I have no proof, but, and then I, I, is, is, would it be an anaconda or would it be a, like a, one of those pythons or would it be what, what, what are those little snakes that are deadly? They're not very big, but they'll kill you quick. I don't know. One of those type of things. An asp. All right. What do you think if he had a dick that looked like an asp? Well, that question was asked and answered, but let's uh, move on to the next one here, Jim. This was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Arya Whitner. I have been wondering this for a while. How do you book an ideal go-home show for a big event without it feeling like an easily skippable show and or just being two hours of run-ins and brawls? I'm guessing Arya's been watching AEW before <laughs> this question came in. I mean, there's... I can't sit here without a roster in front of me and ongoing angles and tell you with any specificity, as they say, how to book, you know, a go-home show specifically, but there's no need for everybody to jump in and, and you know, gang fight everybody else the, the, the week before, nor is there a need to just do an infomercial based on what you've already done and just replay it and have people talk about it. You've got to have a balance, which is why for a big event in the WWF, uh, they would always, we, when I was there, I can speak from experience there, we would always have a sketch of what was going to be announced on what week of television and what was going to be spruced up in other words if you announce these guys are going to have a match but then in a couple of weeks an angle happens that leads to some type of stipulation being added or whatever there are steps increments in each angle and program to build it to the final conclusion at the pay-per-view and if you stagger those because you've got it all spread out ahead of time i mean the old statement in the 80s Vince wanted the Wrestlemania main event for next year in his mind and then he'd work backwards and then suddenly it became you know they do things 15 minutes ahead of time 30 years later or whatever there's no goddamn middle ground but if you stagger all those things then every week on your television you're announcing a new match you're reinforcing why another match that's already been announced happened you're doing an angle to potentially lead to a match being announced next week. Does that make any sense, Brian? It's not feast or famine, all or nothing on one particular show. You're staggering all these things based on getting your most important stuff out, your main event, your feature matches, and then everything happens from there and fills in. Does that make sense? It does, but it feels like 
you know, we used to see on the go home show, like that was where you would get the go home promo. That's where you'd get the promo that sold the pay-per-view or the event. Yeah. Now we get, if there's going to be a multi-person match, you know that every one of these people are just going to be running around fighting each other for no reason at some point during that show. You may not get that promo, but you'll get like an angle or something the week of the pay-per-view. Not the promo to sell you on it, but another addition to it. So I think that a lot of the things that traditionally work that you utilize, and again, you did different kinds of big shows because you also did the Night of Legends, which was incorporating a lot of these Legends uh, clips and Legends footage into your programs, into, when I say your programs, the feuds you had going on. Right. What, what you were actually doing, you also did Night of Legends where you're working on having all of your feuds that are big at the time uh, if only Ricky Morton hadn't stayed in the car, but all your feuds at the time. No, that was the next year. Uh, 95. Oh, that's right. 95. I'm talking about 90, uh, the um, Super Bowl. Yeah. But at the Super Bowl, you had all the feuds, but you also had outsiders coming in. So you had to incorporate them into the show. So, I mean, those are different types of shows. But now a lot of these go home shows, especially the AEW ones and WWE is a lot of tropes they rely on. They feel the same. Well, yes, and that's what we talk about is that it's just, it's like a pattern because these, many people in charge now remember the highlights they of, of what they watched as fans. They don't remember the middle parts that weren't quite as exciting but were necessary because you you can't go at a movie from, okay, the bank blows up and now the goddamn office building blows up and now the fucking there's an explosion over here it's just explosions you've got to have an explosion and then the police fucking respond and then there's an investigation and that and then something else happens so they're just doing shit that they remember seeing on wrestling shows but they don't know how to fill the middle part in and kevin sullivan used to call them a maintenance show if you're doing a TV, all your card is announced and, you know, you don't want to have the guys that are fighting on the pay-per-view that they've got to buy tickets to see or buy pay-per-views or whatever. You don't want to give them too much fighting for free or they won't pay for it. So you're just doing a show every once in a while that's maintaining what you've already done and reminding people of it. It's not breaking any new ground, but it's keeping what you've already got nice and spiffed up. A maintenance show. A maintenance show. Well, that may be what this is here today, but Jim, <laughs> another uh, question. This was sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from John. I've always heard that there is suspicion that Ricky the Dragon Steamboat killed his girlfriend. What? What do you think happened? What in the what? What the, do you know what, about it? <laughs> what is going on here? Where are these questions coming from? Uh, I, I understand it was in Pennsylvania, Jim. What do you know about Ricky Steamboat? Oh, good lord! Is this is this a real email? It is a real email. I'm, so I'm they have somehow it. put Ricky Steamboat in the Jimmy Snuka position. Yes, he has, and wrote that with a straight face. Oh wait, hold on. Never mind about the Ricky... He sent a second email. John in Springfield. It was Jimmy Snooker that killed his girlfriend. I looked it up on YouTube and found your episode about it. That answered my question. I was high and got too confused. Never mind. Also, while I'm here, I'd like to say thanks for the t-shirt. I'm down 100 pounds in that shirt. 
in that shirt has been a great goal for me to work towards. Whenever oh, I see he got it, the smaller shirt while he's on the diet. Whenever I see it hanging in my closet, it helps me stay motivated to get in good enough shape that the shirt is comfortable. So the next time I go to my local MSW show in Springfield, I can represent Jim Cornette. That was very nice. Thank you, John. Well, there you go. And, and I'm sure Ricky Steamboat will be glad he's not representing him. You know, we never got the heel turn from Ricky Steamboat. What if we, they made him a murderer? I mean, it's still time. He's on AEW TV. Well, don't give anybody any ideas. Poor Ricky Steamboat is, it wouldn't kill a fucking fly. Well, Jim, speaking of flies, before we uh, get on with a few things and we have some classic wrestling we're going to close out the show with, Dave Meltzer has released his all-out star ratings, the pay-per-view we just watched and reviewed. Speaking of flies, here's the stuff that draws them. Are you ready for the star review or star ratings? The review of the star ratings? (laughs) I guess I am. I guess I am. Well, you didn't see Zero Hour, but uh, real quick, the over-budget charity Battle Royal did two and a half stars. The six-woman tag, a trios match, did two stars. And the acclaimed... Versus Jarrett. Lethal. Wait a minute. Two star. When's the last time he gave anything two stars? What What did they do? Set the fucking ring on fire? Well, again, it's the pre-show. The first match, the battle royal got two and a half stars. The six woman tag got two stars. And the acclaim versus Jarrett Lethal and Satnam, two stars. Here are the full card or the main I card. See a, I see a pattern developing. Better than you, baby. MJF and Adam Cole versus the Dark Order. Three and a quarter stars. Okay. All right. Shane Taylor versus Samoa Joe, two and three quarter stars. Jesus Christ! So Uncle Dave ain't liking much uh, here so far this this night. Oh, buckle up! Luchasaurus versus Darby Allen, three and three quarter stars. Oh boy. Okay. Well, compared to the other stuff, it was better. Miro versus Powerhouse Hobbs. That was a heck of a match. Four and a quarter stars. It wasn't better than goddamn fucking Flair and Steamboat. I mean, okay. Well, Flair and Steamboat got five stars. You keep thinking. Well, one one or two of them did. But I think they were a few. Kurt Angle never got fucking five stars. Kurt Angle never had people chanting meat at him. Mm. Got you there, see? Got You got me there. Chris Statlander versus Ruby Soho. Two and a quarter, oh, no, excuse me, two and a half stars. Brian Danielson versus Ricky Stark strap match, five Ma- stars. I was about to say, it was match of the night for me. So, I, again, I don't know if it was one of the great matches in the history of wrestling, five stars, but it was the best match of the night for me. Claudio Castagnoli and Wheeler Yuta versus Eddie Kingston and Shibata, the man oh. with the returned brain. <laughs> Four and a quarter stars. Oh, come on. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Oh, come on. Okay. All right. Here we go. The match I thought was the best match of the night. Kenny Omega versus Kanosuke Takeshita. I thought it was the best match of the night. I was surprised by this. This is too high. Five-star match. Oh, come on. Again, what the... That's ridiculous. All right. Bullet Club Gold... Versus Young Bucks and FTR, four and a half stars. Uh, he still can't uh, totally forsake his his little buckaroos. And that match was not that good. 
And finally, John Moxley versus Orange Cassidy. Okay, here's the test. Is is Dave <laughs> is Dave on his medication? Is is Dave still able to bring any honesty forth from his his modeled brain? Moxley versus Cassidy, four and a half stars. Oh, good. <sighs> All right. So the final five matches were five stars, four and a quarter stars, five stars, four and a half stars, four and a half stars. And, uh, and Kurt Angle couldn't have made the cut. And again, I ask you, does this feel like to you one of the greatest cards of all time, one of the greatest events of all time, a collection of the greatest matches of all time, or a lot of these matches just run-of-the-mill AEW matches? Run-of-the-mill AEW matches. And that's not even a, a, as good of a compliment as just a run-of-the-mill match. That's right. Well, you know what's not run-of-the-mill, Jim? What? The Box of Awesome. I'll tell you what, by cracky, nothing that comes out of a box of awesome is, is regular or routine or normal or ordinary or just everyday blasé type of stuff. No, it is all. I'm telling you, if you get stuff from, out of a regular box, a box of Cracker Jacks, whatever, that might be, nah. That's a regular box? A box of Cracker Jacks? Whatever. Whatever kind of box that you got. <laughs> it, it, depending on your box. A lot of the viewers and the listeners out there, they may have their own particular box that they pull things out of that may not be awesome. But if you want a box of awesome, you got to go to boxofawesome.com because after all, our friends over at Bespoke Post are not only Doing the Lord's work with the small businesses, the up-and-coming brands of America today that need your support, that live hand-to-mouth and paycheck-to-paycheck and product-to-product, that need the notoriety that comes with being in the box of awesome, they're supporting those people. you got to do your part to support small business. Go right now to boxofawesome.com and take the quiz. And you don't even have to be a smart feller to take this kind of quiz. You just tell them what you like. If you don't know what you like, then you're a stupid son of a bitch. Everyone knows what they like, and that's why it's so easy to do this and get the right thing for you from Box of Awesome. Well, that's true. But if you don't know what you like, well, they'll tell you what you like, and you'll like it with a smile on your face. No, no, no. They want, no, it's not about them. It's about you. They care about you, and they're going to deliver things to you and hope they get a smile. They're not going to demand a smile. They're going to give you a chance to tell them what you want, and then they're going to give you some shit. And if you don't tell them what you want, they'll just pick it for you, and you'll like it. Because it's all good stuff. It's all good stuff, but there's a very nice, friendly way to... Get from well, bespoke we, we post the we door. Don't, we don't have time to make friends here. We're doing business. I'm telling you, whether it's knives from Bare Bones based in Salt Lake City, or whether it's uh, the American barbecue rub from the Great American Spice Company, or whether it's hot sauces from Texas, Nevada, and California, whether it's an aging kit from the Black Swan Cooperage, hand blown glasses from Italian people i mean they've got all kinds of stuff i mean it it just it's it's whatever you're knives, into knives wonderful knives you i mentioned the knives you're on the knives they're I, on my mind they you know you need to be evaluated what but regardless of what you want folks they've got it and each box is valued at around 70 dollars. but you only pay a fraction of that price because they're not going to gouge you 
And all you got to do from there is just open it up and enjoy the greatness. Bask in the glory of your Box of Awesome. And right now, if you go to boxofawesome.com and do everything we said and enter the code DRIVE, D-R-I-V-E, 20% off your first monthly Box of Awesomeness when you enter the code DRIVE at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com. Code DRIVE for 20% off your first box, and then you're going to need more boxes. But they're still going to be cheap. Because, again, these people are giving you quality products at low, low prices. I don't know how they do it. They must be out of their minds. Is there any kind of mental evaluation kit from a small business that we can find out if they're crazy for selling stuff this cheap? I'll let you know after I get done with my mental evaluation. Yeah, somebody needs to look at you. You're a little fixated on the cutting objects. I don't know what you're talking about, but Box of Awesome. Dot com. Dot com. Well, Jim, let's uh, close out the show with classic wrestling talk. I have an email here. Let me read this. This is from Tim Dalton, proud Smoky Mountain Wrestling Fan Week veteran, Buffalo, New York. I remember Tim. Tim, yes. Very nice guy. Very, very nice guy. One of the Dalton gang. I'm behind in listening to episodes, but I heard your recent guest the program from Buffalo 1968. You were wondering why Bobby Bruns was promoting shows in a territory historically run by Pedro Martinez. I can give you a definitive answer. After Ilio DePaulo retired in 1965, wrestling here in Buffalo went into the crapper. There were only about 20 shows in total between 1966 and 1967. Here's a note from the old Steel Belt Wrestling website regarding 1968. Following the slow times in 1967, wrestling in 1968 was sporadic and passed through a couple different promoters. Bobby Bruns promoted the annual Parade of Champions, which uncharacteristically was held in April. The event featured an NWA title defense by Gene Kaniski, although WWF champion Bruto Sammartino had appeared as title holder about 18 months before. Late in the year, Bruns made an attempt to reinvigorate wrestling in Buffalo in a tried-and-true fashion. He brought back the area's most infamous tag team, Doc and Mike Gallagher, for several matches against the dream pairing of Argentina Rocca and Johnny Powers. The Gallaghers had ended their long pairing in 1966 as Mike went into business in North Carolina and Doc was working at a health club in Atlanta. Reliance on the Gallaghers seemed to spark interest for a couple of cards, but the territory was again flat by the end of the year in which a final show was canceled. Now back to Tim here. It seems things went back to normal, in quotes, later in 1969, with Powers and the Love Brothers headlining shows, leading to the formation of the NWF in 1970. So there's a little historical information, a backstory behind Bobby Bruns and Buffalo. Well, and uh, now, now I think he said Elio DePaulo retired from the ring in what he said, 65 or 66? 65. But Pedro Martinez predated that, I thought, as far as promoting Buffalo. Did he leave and then come back? Well, um, I mean, well, it says the NWF formed out of this with Bobby Bruns running. It was after that that the NWF formed. Of course, the NWF, right. everyone thinks of Johnny Powers and Pedro Martinez. 
So I, I guess basically uh, Martinez was not involved in the early 60s and it was and Elio de Paulo had more pull in the office than what we might have imagined. How do you think you would have seen that if you were a longtime promoter in, let's say, upstate New York or Ohio, just the general area, and you have the option? You have a town that was a pretty good wrestling town. It's gone dormant. Biggest star is no longer wrestling, may not even be involved with the promotion. Trying to bring back old stars to get people in. Who knows if any new stars are getting them interested, but they're having problems drawing. What stops a town from becoming dormant? What causes a promoter to go in there and try again? And how scary a proposition is that? Well, any time in the territory days that a, a town or towns linked together in the same general area stopped running for whatever reason, became dark, everybody wanted to open them up. But, you, you know, you needed to be able to get television. You also needed to be access to a crew of guys. And it sounds like instead of trying to affiliate himself necessarily full-fledged with the WWWF or even uh, uh, the territory, if I'm doing my geography right in my head, the Sheik's Detroit territory, Detroit and Ohio, and that you know part would be somewhat adjacent where guys could be sent, but he didn't try to do that. He tried to bring in some of his old friends, the Gallaghers. They were, you know, one of the top tag teams in the history of that area. But it it seems like from, because a lot of times what guys would do in those days is they would call in favors from old friends. And maybe Bobby Bruns being from the Midwest, from the St. Louis Central States area, He'd probably have more friends, either Sam Muchnick himself or Kaniski, who's the NWA champion. You know, so it looks like he was trying to piece it together and just call in favors. And we don't know what the TV situation was. Was it good TV or was it really any TV? Or was it consistent television? When you when you run infrequent shows when you're trying to open up a territory, that's not good because you don't get the wrestling fans in the habit of Monday night at the Mid-South Coliseum or Friday night in the Sam Houston Coliseum or whatever the case. And as Christine Jarrett used to say, wrestling fans are creatures of habit. So the fact that they were running infrequent shows, he was trying to do it, but he probably wasn't well-financed. And... You know, sometimes when you run and you cancel and then you set up another date, people don't trust it. There was an element of nostalgia to the names on the card, but not necessarily a cohesiveness of a a territory running regular events and ongoing rivalries and programs between the talent. So, you know, it probably just didn't work. And I mean, I've seen, you know, Jerry Jarrett tried to go into Cincinnati in 1980. But unfortunately, he had just landed the television deal when Lawler broke his leg. And business in 1980 and everywhere in the territory was for a lot of the year because there was no Lawler and they tried to open up a new town. I went to the first show at the Cincinnati Gardens that seated about 11,000 and there wasn't even 1,100. It was fucking bad. 
because that was a whole new group of of talent they'd never seen before. It was a show that they weren't seeing the top name to begin with, and they had been used to a whole nother style. And Jared wasn't going to rent a ten thousand seat building on a regular basis to to lose money to the point where if he did get him in the habit and Lawler had come back and a blah, 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 because the next year Memphis is drawing 8,000 people a week when Lawler came back, but it wouldn't have done that in Cincinnati because they didn't know at that time who he was to be overjoyed he was back. So it depends on your timing. It depends on your television. It depends on the access to the talent you've got as to whether you can open up a dark town and make a go of it. And we, we've told the story where Jared opened up Louisville. It had been dark for almost five years, but he had a TV. He was the booker. He had a building he could afford, and they came. And he made nothing but money in Louisville for 20-something years. But he couldn't do it in Cincinnati because the timing wasn't right and the TV wasn't strong enough and the building was too big. And some of that could have come into play in Buffalo as well. It just, you know, you've seen throughout history promoters that are successful in one particular area try to annex another area or go to another place and it, it doesn't work at all. It's not because they couldn't do it or even that they had bad talent, but sometimes it's the TV, sometimes it's the building, or sometimes it's just how burnt the town was that caused it to go dark to begin with. And they might remember that, oh, that fucking wrestling. We don't want to see any more of that shit. Or it could be, oh God, wrestling, we haven't had that in ages. It just depends. Well, Jim, this next email was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Eric Ford. My friend Mike Eskew's uncle Bobby Guy recently passed away. Okay, what now? You lost me around a far turn. What? What is this relationship? My friend, Mike Eskew, his uncle, Bobby Guy, passed away. Okay, wasn't he a blues guitarist? That's Buddy Guy. Buddy Guy. The great Buddy Guy. I knew a friend of mine who actually went to a Buddy Guy concert and went to the urinal, and all of a sudden, next to him was Buddy Guy with the guitar still in his hand, taking a piss <laughs> in the middle of the set. But anyway, Mike is not a listener but is a longtime fan of yours and has given me permission to pass this story along. We had always heard a tale growing up in Wynn, Arkansas. Wynn, Arkansas. Of his uncle Bobby's wrestling career as Batlin Bobby Guy, but we had never seen any evidence of it. Mike ran across this pretty cool artifact, and I thought you would get a kick oh. out of it. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I've, I've seen this. Now I know where you're going. I've seen this. I got the email too. Oh, okay. Nick Goulas was obviously not a fan of Outlaw Mud Show bullshit, <laughs> but this proves he was willing to give a fella a chance. Bobby Guy went on to work for Outlaw promoter Henry Rogers in Missouri and Arkansas off and on throughout the 70s. Side note, Mike's dad was the half-Filipino wrestler for an Outlaw promotion in East Texas as Great Kabuki 2. <laughs> we always get a laugh out of that. And I have a note here. Let me see if I can zoom this in a little bit. It is on the Goulas Welch Wrestling Enterprises letterhead, Nashville, Tennessee, February 19th, 1972. Jim, let me read this and get your thoughts on it. 
Friend Bobby, we received your letter. First, the name Bobby Guy is not a professional name and doesn't sound good. By you wrestling for Henry Rogers and Aubrey Griffith, we do not know them as promoters and booking offices. <laughs> However... Well, wait, wait a minute, let me just say also, Henry Rogers was a guy that ran Malden, Missouri. That's where Eddie Gilbert started. Eddie Gilbert started there, Kenny Wayne started there. A lot of the guys, before they were 18, they couldn't get a license in Tennessee. A lot of guys who would end up going on to, and this was in the mid-70s, going on to the Tennessee Territory would get a little bit of experience in Malden, but it was a very small-time thing with local guys wrestling that the people around town knew, and it was just there in that town, that little small town. And Aubrey Griffith was the guy that ran Little Outlaw shows in West Memphis, Arkansas, that was the first one that booked Jerry Lawler when he was plugging their matches on his radio show he had when he was in college, and that's when Fargo said, don't plug them, plug Nick's matches, and got him booked for Nick Goulas in, in Memphis, Tennessee, not West Memphis, Arkansas. So, so what that's you, who those promoters were. Well, what do you take? I'll stop right here and ask you this part. What do you think of the line, we do not know them as promoters and booking offices? <laughs> yeah, well, it's like, it, it was Nick's weird verbiage he used to use, uh, say, we don't recognize them as, you know, being fucking legitimate. They're outlaws. So your experience with them matters not to us. However, we will give you a chance and see what you can do. As soon as you receive this letter, call me at once. We can use you Friday, February 25th, and Saturday, February 26th. Be here at the office by noon Friday. Once again, please call me as soon as you receive this letter. Awaiting to hear from you, we remain, as ever, yours in sports, <laughs> Nick Goulas. And it says Nick Goulas and Roy Welch, but it's Nick Goulas' signature. Yes, and, and I saw, and now I'm trying, I'm looking at the email that, that he, he sent it to me and to the uh, drive-through email, and I had the picture of the letter, and now it just says image zero dot jpeg, and I can't click on it. I don't know what the fuck, but oh, that ghoulus. Well, that's the thing is, um, it's also what is the uh, the secretary, the little secretary line? Oh, hold on, let me go back on the left hand side. It's Nina NG, Bond. NG, and then R W N H B. N H B would be Nina Bond. NH, yeah, uh, Nick Goulas and then Nina Bond was the uh, the secretary that typed it, um, and that's the that's the way they would communicate in those days. You know, the the wrestler or whoever it was would send pictures to the office with a letter, "Please book me," and I guarantee you, Nick's probably bringing his fucking guy in. So, okay, I got a a fucking spot on Friday and Saturday. It was probably Friday night, some spot show, and then Saturday night they're gonna beat him on TV. Because he'd never seen this guy before, so he's probably, okay, I got a, a fresh, warm body that nobody's seen coming in to do a job on TV Saturday morning. But but yeah, that's the way that they used to do things. Do you think he ever would have actually given one of these outlaw guys a chance? Well, actually, some outlaw guys did eventually turn at Troy Graham. Oh, I mean, yeah. it, not necessarily Nick. I'm not saying Nick gave it, but... Uh, some outlaw guys, every once in a while, would turn out to be something. Some, like Eddie Gilbert, because he was Tommy Gilbert's son, or Ken Wayne, because he was Buddy Wayne's son, they sent him over there, because they couldn't get a license in Tennessee yet. So get some experience in front of a few people. 
But if you go through the history of outlaw promotions, Bobby Fulton, Bobby Fulton's first match was outlaw as fuck. His first couple of years in wrestling was outlaw as fuck. He was only 16 years old. But, you know, some guys then would persevere, would learn, get better, get a break. You A lot of times, if a guy was working outlaw in a particular territory, he would never get booked straight into, you know, the, the recognized territory. Lawler was an exception. Lawler's been an exception all his life. You'd have to go somewhere else and work for a, a established promoter and maybe get some experience there and then get booked back into your home territory, not directly from it. But it could happen if a guy was good enough and, and stuck around and tried hard enough. A lot of guys did outlaws in the early days, but not, it, it was a whole different thing. Nobody outside of Malden, Missouri knew that there was wrestling matches in Malden, Missouri, featuring these people that lived in Malden, Missouri. But so Nick it knew. wasn't Nick knew because they, you knew when anybody was running in your geographic area where you had television and were running regular shows, you as a wrestling promoter knew. But the wrestling fans, there was no publicity, there was no internet. So a lot of these outlaw shows, they were only an annoyance or a hindrance to the particular promoter that ran that territory. And the wrestling fans didn't know they were going on if they were 100 miles away. And none of the other promoters in the business had even heard of these fucking people. So when you say working outlaw, and now everybody knows wherever you're working. But back then, unless you unless you got a reputation for being someone who had established yourself as kind of a name in the business, but then was working against the established promoters and working outlaw shows trying to draw them money, then you'd get blackballed. Some jack-off jerking the curtain on first, uh, like Nick here, he didn't give a fuck. Otherwise, to say, I don't know who you are, I'll take a look at you, but we don't think much of that outlaw mud show bullshit up here. So you only got blackballed if you were a name or in, in, in the, on the wrong side of a promotional war. You'd have to go somewhere else where it wasn't a problem to that promoter and he wasn't a friend of the promoter you'd been fucking working against. And then he might get another chance. Well, Jim... Our final classic wrestling topic is a really, really interesting one, and you and I talked a little bit off-air about it because it's so... It's something we had never heard before, and it's so out there, yet it may be legit, and it's crazy. And it actually ties into a conversation you and I had not too long ago on Guess the Program, that Buffalo program we were talking about with Antonina Rocca, 1969 in Buffalo. You said, you asked a question... Where was Raqqa? There are periods of time where no one knows where Raqqa was. Well, an email has been sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Mike. And I'll read some of this. And Jim, I believe you have some of this in front of you as well. Yes. Hi, Brian. Author researcher Peter Lavenda posted an essay this week recalling his time in New York in the late 1960s where he joined a weird church in order to escape the draft. The church turned out to be a hub for lots of odd activity, some involving the film industry and intelligence community. I've read several of his books, 
and his story about this time has been consistent, but there is a new detail in his piece that I think would be of interest to show. The piece is on Substack. It's titled Unholy Communion by Peter Lavenda. Check that out if you want to read the whole piece. Would you like me to turn this over to you? How do you want to do this? Well, it, we do we want to... I'm going to go to this because instead of the excerpts here, I'll just... Hold on. Continue reading. Thank you very much. But I asked you, I said, how can we not have heard anything about this story before? Because Rocka was one of the biggest names in wrestling business, and this hasn't been in any book, even though it was after his heyday, it hadn't been in any book, it hadn't been told on podcasts or whatever. And you said this guy, to be honest, was nobody and, you know, and we're not trying to knock him, but he hasn't had a platform. It's a very small group of people in something completely unrelated to the pro wrestling industry that would. Yeah, I didn't say he was a nobody. I did not say that. <laughs> well, you said he, he, you know, nobody knows really who this guy is in our world. And it wasn't a big circle of people that was involved in this. So it's just now maybe coming to light. But apparently, as you go down this, this article, that the guy talks about the church that he had belonged and, and that he was going to was a front for anti-communist activities and American intelligence agents of some status, and that he intended a meeting at the Brotherhood Synagogue, I'm reading this, in New York City with Rabbi Alan Block, William Prasky, Andre Panaccio and Antonina Rocca, just the five of us, and the topic of the conversation was Rocca's involvement with the CIA. And apparently, this church was a, a very pro Israel uh, place based in Greenwich Village, well known for its Greenwich Village, Greenwich Village, well known for its liberal attitude, etc. Um, but anyway, according to the, the story here, Rocca was telling him how he had agents killed from underneath him in Lebanon, how he smuggled phantom jets into Israel from Europe. He was assuring the rabbi that whatever it seemed the U.S. government was doing where Israel was concerned at the time, they were actually working behind the scenes to ensure that Israel got the aid that they needed. With Raqqa. With Raqqa. And he said, and the guy said that he had never heard of Antonina Raqqa before because he was not a wrestling fan or whatever, but it was just this guy that he was listening to in this meeting. Like you said, when you think about it, where did Raqqa go for large periods of time in mid-60s, late-60s, into the 70s? I didn't have an answer for you. And usually you kind of know where everyone goes. Yeah. Unless they just completely disappear. He didn't. He was still around. Came back to be a commentator with Vince McMahon. But here he is in New York. So you could place him there, of course. Rocco was big in New York. He may have had an apartment in New York. And he's at this meeting saying that he's been helping smuggle jets <laughs> for the CIA. And like you said, it says here, um, Panaccio, to go back to him, had contacts throughout the entertainment industry and among other Italian-American personalities, of which Antonina Rocca was one. Born in Italy, 
Rocca moved to Argentina before World War II broke out and became a soccer and rugby player before becoming a professional wrestler and moving to the United States. So there's nothing they're saying that seems... And down here further, it it says he was a world traveler, fluent in several languages, including Italian and Spanish, as well as English, which that is true, because that's why he had the appeal to both the Hispanic and the Italian audiences in New York. That's what made him so big. And he died in 1977. Remember, the first reports were that he was 49 years old. Yeah, that's right. Because that was the story that was told when he came to the United States and to Texas in 1949 or 48, that it was, he was like a 21-year-old sensation. But then other stories came out that he was 55 years old in 1977, which would have made him, you know, old enough to serve in World War II, which is probably another thing he was trying to cover up. If he was old enough, why didn't he? Maybe he did something else. We don't fucking know. But uh, there was never any certainty as how, and some people thought he was older because he, you know, obviously died at a young age anyway. But there, and, and retired from wrestling, or at least for the most part, at an even younger age, you know, early 40s at best, when he had been the biggest star in the business. So a a lot of, and there are other things in this article. Uh, This Panaccio had a non-speaking role in The Godfather. It says here, too, about the funeral. In order to avoid congressional limits on aid to Israel, the jets were sold to a third party in Luxembourg. They were crated up, according to Raqqa, and assembled in Luxembourg, after which they were flown to Israel. This seems like a lot of detail to me. He also insisted that, He had two men that worked with him as agents killed in Lebanon by Palestinian spies. It was all very cloak and dagger, of course, and could have been put down to bragging, but that still does not explain what we were all doing there that morning. Now, Raqqa was was full of shit as a Christmas turkey as relates to himself and his own publicity and what level of athlete he had been before he came to the United States and you know, his grandiose accomplishments, but that's not unusual in wrestling. You know, both of these things could potentially be true. You could also see why someone like Antony Naraka, with the appeal he had to different people and also the ability to speak different languages and travel, would be an asset to the CIA. Maybe not smuggling. I mean, I don't know about planes, but someone like that is the kind of person the CIA could use, uh, from what I understand. Let me go back to this. Rocca maintained his involvement in the wrestling world for years after our meeting in 1969. He worked as a referee in Japan, among other things, and eventually retired officially in 1976. He was a world traveler, fluent in several languages, including Italian and Spanish, as well as English, so he would have made a useful intelligence agent. It is unsure how he got a part in... It's unsure how he got the part in Communion. I don't know, what does that mean? Oh, I guess he was in a movie. I didn't know that. Except that he evidently had the same agent as actress Lillian Roth, who also appeared in that film. Do you know anything about that film? Well, no, actually, I I was reading earlier in the story, one of Communion's co-stars 
uh, was named Linda Miller. Linda Miller had just broken up with her husband, Jason Miller. Jason Miller played Father Karras in The Exorcist. That Jason Miller. And Linda Miller is the daughter of Jackie Gleason. And Jason and Linda Miller are the parents of actor Jason Patrick, who was in The Lost Boys. And apparently they were all in communion along with Antonina Rocca. Fast forward to 77. That was the year. Remember, communion officially opened in theaters as Alice, Sweet Alice. Antonina Rocca died on March 15th at Roosevelt Hospital in Manhattan of a urinary tract infection. He was only 55 years old. His funeral was attended by thousands, but there was never any mention anywhere of his supposed involvement with the CIA in the Middle East, and no confirmation that he smuggled phantom jets into Israel from Europe. And I didn't know that Communion became the movie Alice Sweet Alice because I remember seeing that, and I didn't know Rocco was in it. Now we got to track that son of a bitch down. How could we have never have heard that Antonina Rocco was in a movie? You would think everyone always talks about what wrestlers are in movies, and you see the same list over and over. Interesting. Alice Sweet Alice had had spooky uh, ads in the newspaper for that movie. Are there any wrestlers you could see, like from your days in the locker room? You're like, you know, he was somewhat odd. Maybe he was actually a CIA agent. Um, I was always suspicious of Hans Schroeder. I feel like maybe he he could have worked either side in Germany if he was a little older. All right. Well, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this rocket thing? Any closing thoughts on all this? Again, it's something um, I hope someone files a Freedom of Information Act request on Rocket and see what we could find out because it's such an interesting story. I don't even know if the CIA would have anything publicly available. Well, that's why I'm thinking we need to put Hornbaker on this case. Because if anybody can research this down to the nub, it'd be Tim Hornbaker. But I mean, it's crazy things have happened. You know, there was the story that Chuck Barris, the gong show, he was supposedly a CIA agent or whatever. Uh, That may have been. Because he was smart. You know what it was? Who knows what he did or didn't. But the truth is, if you right now announce that you were a CIA agent and you did all these things, the CIA won't deny it. Yes, they they will disavow any knowledge of your actions. I've heard no. that on that tape that self destructed. They won't deny it. They won't say whether or not you are or aren't. Well, they'll, they'll the CIA. S- they won't even say we don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Apparently, that's how Chuck Barris got away with it. They couldn't deny that uh-huh. he wasn't in the CIA. Well, see, according to the Impossible Mission Force, they're supposed to disavow any knowledge of their actions. Well, there it is, the Antonina Rocca uh, plane smuggling story. Any other information anyone has, let us know, and we'll certainly... Uh, this has been the most interesting closing of classic wrestling we're, topics. We're going we're gonna to out Rocca as being a, a secret agent for the CIA. That's what we're going to do. We will see about outing Rocca, but we are certainly out of here. But, Jim, let's get a song before we get out of here. This one was sent to cornydrivethroughgmail.com from Peter Moore. Outlaw Pete. Let's go to this. It's Connie's drive-thru, it's Connie's drive-thru, baby, it's Connie's drive-thru, it's Connie's drive-thru. Yesterday you asked me what I was listening to, so I told you with a smile, it's Connie's drive-thru. Then you asked me if you could listen to I said thank you, fuck you, bye It's Connie's drive-thru 
questions if you mail them through. And if you want honest wrestling reviews, you know what to do. So turn them on and say free words like you used to. with you Courtney's know, drive-thru. What do you think, I've Jim? only got one question. Yeah. What's the name of the show? It's Courtney's drive-thru. <laughs> but that's kind of what they do. I mean, even like, you know, the next Bomber song, after you listen to that, you just start chanting the name Jim Cornette over and over again. Get yeah, the no, no, experience. No, no. So, you want he said, It sounds like the male version of Joni Mitchell there. A singer-songwriter. What? Very, very nice. Very good. You a fan of Joni Mitchell? Uh, I said he sounded like a male Joni Mitchell. You did say that. Jo- Joni Mitchell actually often sounded like a male Joni Mitchell. <laughs> Still had answered the question. Are you a fan of Joni Mitchell? Well, it depends. Is she a male or female Joni Mitchell? Well, with that, the drive through has closed. Oh, shit. Where's my... I'll do this. Oh. Every time I have my marimba... Oh, here we go. <sighs> We'll be back on the Jim Cornette experience before yeah, you know Yeah, blame it. me. Hey, Jim, before we close that, actually, as we're doing the uh, closing here, the market closes in a half hour. Podcast one, $4.14. <laughs> down 48.25% today. Well, golly gee, there's always tomorrow. On paper. And of course, tomorrow, the Jim Cornette experience, wherever you find your favorite podcast, go through the archives, the drive-through, and the experience going back to 2013 patreon.com slash Cornette, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, subscribe today. Official Travis Heckle artwork for full episodes, clips of episodes, Omnibus Collections. Check it out today and share those clips with anyone you think would like it, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. You can follow Jim on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcast, and of course, don't forget about the wrestling news each and every day, your free daily wrestling newscast, thewrestlingnews.com, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Cornette's Collectibles at jimcornette.com. What's going on, Jim? 
at jimcornet.com. Is Jim even there? Hello? Maybe he's not there. Yes, I, I'm sorry. I, I was trying to type and I was muted. Um, <laughs> the Midnight Express 40th anniversary action figure set. Get yours today. They're going quickly. They're going like greased pigs. At jimcornet.com. And of course, the drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen Pinu, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. Or if you're calling a Rob... Have your lawyer call ours if you have a problem with anything. But until the Jim Cornette experience, and next week right back here on the drive-thru, for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!